There's a little bit of uh, crunchiness on my end in terms of the sound, so my apologies in advance. Just be ready for that. Um, but for the most part, the internet played along <laughs> during the recording and everything worked out. Um, Richard and I talk a bit about some more recent events, but also have a larger conversation about ways that we can think about the left in the United States so that it's not just navel-gazing and that we actually have, uh, we take into consideration things that are going on around the world talk about where we see things going in 2019 and whether there's any hope for the future. <laughs> I know that sounds a bit bleak, but it's something that we have to really wrap our heads around and think about where things are going, um, not just in terms of the general uh, U.S. government, but in terms of the way we as leftists of color think of leftism and what the future holds for those of us who want to see the United States become a much more progressive place and one that's plugged in with the rest of our comrades around the world. So uh, plug in because this is a long one. Try to relax if you can, even though we talk about some rather dark subjects. Uh, but this is a three-hour-long episode, so feel free to um, press play, pause, come back to it. We have uh, quite the discussion on our hands here. So enjoy, and thanks so much in advance for listening. You know what? I'm going to record from the jump. <laughs> I say this because... What ends up happening is you and I will talk for like two hours and then we'll decide, oh yeah, now let's start recording. Fair so enough. Um, yeah, we should probably just start recording because usually so much good stuff gets lost because we're not recording. <laughs> Fair enough. So, yeah. Um, so first thing I just want to say, I'm really sick. I'm getting sick. I'm in that like weird stage where stuff is hurting and like my throat is hurting, my ears are hurting. You know what I mean? When you swallow mm -hmm. and it like hurts your ear. Um, because here in Sao Paulo, which is where I am right now, it is, every day is different. And like weather.com is a freaking joke because they can't handle tropical weather, I guess. Um, so whenever, don't like, word to the wise, do not use weather.com. They are not sponsoring us, so I can say this. Um, <laughs> do not, don't use weather.com when you go to any place that's considered tropical. Um, so like here it has been cold usually and this is normal for Sao Paulo but like it'll be freezing cold one day and then like burning up hot the next and then raining and hot and raining and cold all in like the span of about three days <laughs> and uh it's yeah weather.com is always wrong and usually it's actually colder inside the houses than outside so if you're sick or like 
recovering from the thousand and one weather changes that happen in the, the span of two or three days, being inside is like, it makes it worse almost because you're cold. <laughs> so there's, <laughs> there's no winning, none at all. So yeah, I'm sorry for my voice for, for you and for anyone who's listening. My voice is like awful right now. So I apologize. <laughs> uh, we'll be okay. <laughs> yeah. So um, you and I are supposed to be doing a year in review, which is scary. Like, I can't believe it's already the end of 2018, which is kind of weird. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How was your year? <laughs> oh, man. It's been a ride. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, there's so much going on. And uh, I mean, the one thing that one of the things that I have enjoyed o- over the year is this learning process that I've been on about, uh, you know, the history and the, the theory behind socialism, communism, and about liberation and uh, about the stories uh, that, that motivated people and that, uh, you know, and documented their experiments or experiences and uh, the little hope that is still remaining is coming from, from those sources at the moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I this the, this experience uh, with the the left pocket project and then also on uh, the research I've been doing on my own outside has been uh, has been an enlightening experience and I've, I'm incredibly thankful for it. So and speaking of research that's being done uh, for left pocket project and outside of it um, for the next few episodes, not this episode, but the next two episodes, we're going to be talking about Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Um, so for those of you who are interested in reading along with us and then um, checking out the episode, I've already posted a free full PDF of the book on the Left Pocket Project um, Patreon page, which is open to the public, by the way. So I don't, for anyone who's coming on to this new for Left Pocket Project, we don't have any... Um, any episodes or materials or anything that are behind a paywall. So all of all of the stuff that we post that we discuss and everything is always free for anyone who's interested in it. Um, and if you want to give us a donation to help fund and pay for um, our assistance and data storage and coffee and all those things that I'm like really transparent about actually, um, you can find, find all that info on Twitter. Um, but for anyone who wants to donate to us they're welcome to but anything that we talk about discuss um go over read even is always available through some free means so for right now you can get the whole book for free as a pdf um on patreon but yeah i think that like you're the one who suggested pedagogy of the oppressed so (laughs) i'm (laughs) laughing because everyone you know like everyone knows that i researched brazil and so Brazil is always on my mind, and that's where I'm right now, for example. Um, but it was Richard, actually, who suggested we read Paulo Freire's book, who is, he is uh, Brazilian, um, and actually has come up in the news again lately, even though he's, he's been deceased for a while. Um, but this whole debate about, you know, the influence of Marxism and like creeping leftism and blah, blah, blah. We can talk about mm-hmm. Brazil in a minute, because that's on my year in review. Um, <laughs> now that they're like under, like, the, the new president is a fascist, um, but yeah, I'm 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 laughing even though it's very serious. It's a sad topic, but I'm laughing just because like it's so absurd that sometimes you can't do anything but laugh because it just it doesn't seem real, you know. Um, but it doesn't seem real to me that like people are still debating Paulo Freire as like some sort of menace, and 
I'm reading about him in my own research as someone who was like hunted and harangued by the military dictatorship. And so to think that now, like 60 something years later, people are still having these weird, weird ass debates about Paulo Freire somehow being a threat to the state and he's deceased. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's just, it, people are really desperate to find an enemy. And um, unfortunately, you know, it's to the detriment of the population. It's 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 not really doing anything but like hurting people. So, um, but it, it serves no other purpose other than that. Um, but we can get to Brazil in a minute because, like I said, that's in my year in review. But I mentioned all of that to say, for those of you who are sticking around to the next few episodes, which will come out uh, in 2019, the beginning of the year, uh, they're going to be about the Gaji of the Press. So just be sure to check out the full book on the Patreon page. Uh, so yeah, sorry about that. That's like, I always no. have these little infomercial moments, <laughs> but they're necessary. Otherwise, we wouldn't know, you know. Absolutely. No, and it gives me an opportunity. Uh, one of the things that I came across uh, while doing, or a couple of things I came across, one was uh, a uh, discussion put on by Harvard with uh, Noam Chomsky and a uh, French uh, professor. And they talk about Freire and uh, so I'm sorry, I'm going to butcher the name. I, I can try to Freire, but I'm, I'm no, always going to make it work. No, Freire is correct. You said it right, right the first time. Right. Yeah, Freire. So uh, uh, they're discussing him and it was just an interesting experience just because you mentioned the two of the prevalent uh, takes on, on Freire and the last one that I saw that I also saw repeated throughout some of the literary critiques that I read online was uh, represented by this uh, guy from Harvard who essentially didn't get didn't doesn't seem like he got past the forward by Donald Masado or Macedo, mm. and uh was personally affronted by what he wrote about Harvard and then was looking <laughs> at the looking at the document as as in like basically he was looking at it like a a a, a curriculum for literacy which is, mm -hmm. I guess, apparently in a lot of academic fields, particularly in the, you know, the right-leaning or the more traditional uh, academia, that's that's as far as a lot of people got with what he was going. They looked at it mm -hmm. as a project for literacy uh, in Brazil, and uh, they look at it, and then they're, they're like, oh, well, this doesn't, I can't, you know, bring this into, you know, rural Georgia for uh, a community with low literacy and, and use it, and it, it reflected to me uh, a lack of engagement with the material because what I read mm -hmm. seems to be applicable to all different parts of life and far beyond just educating uh, people for literacy purposes. And so oh, yeah. I'm really excited about uh, getting into it. And uh, it, it was a little dense and so it's tough, but there's a, a variety of places that you can engage with the material. The one other thing I was going to mention is uh, there's a book out, but there's also an interview with uh, about kind of about the main subject of the book but it's called Tuesdays with Maury mm -hmm. and it's a it's about a professor who essentially I think uh very much lived a lot of what uh was talked about in pedagogy of the oppressed uh and I, I don't he didn't I didn't see either in the book or in the interview him mention uh the pedagogy of the oppressed specifically but you saw him implement it and just live it in a lot of different ways but uh so that would be another a good thing i would suggest people watch but it's uh got a sad ending so i wouldn't watch that unless you're ready to cry <laughs> oh my god so it's so funny that you mentioned this because when i was in co i think i was in college or like the end of high school and we watched this movie and you know like sometimes 
now that you're an adult and you reflect back on things that you saw maybe 10, 20 years ago or read 10 or 20 years ago. And at the time you were like, oh my God, what the hell is this? Like, why am I reading this? I don't understand any of like, You understood it, but you just understood it at face value, you know? Mm-hmm. And then when you're an adult, you come, you like reflect back on things and things kind of come full circle and start to make sense. So that is a book slash movie that I definitely need to revisit because all I remember at the time was being like, this is so freaking boring. What is this? Like, why are we watching this? <laughs> so now that you've linked it to Freddy, I definitely have to go back and watch it. Like now I feel more motivated to go back because I had forgotten that it even existed just because I was so bored at the time. So don't take my word for it. Listen to Richard because Richard is watching it as an adult and not like a bored 18 year old who doesn't care about <laughs> these sorts of things. <laughs> so, and especially if you're saying there's a link there, like I'm super excited now to go back and kind of revisit what the movie and it's a book too, right? It's like based yeah, it's on a, it's book, a book, a, and a movie, a movie, and then there's an interview that you can find on YouTube with uh, him and the with the the teacher and Ted Koppel. And oh wow. Ted, yeah, Ted Koppel comes off as not getting it also. Right. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> but the, the teacher, the professor is, is patient enough and uh, works through it. And it, it's really, uh, it's enlightening and it, it's an emotional experience. Wow, you are teaching me stuff tonight. I really had no idea there was any connection there. So that's, I'm like super... I'm super excited now to go back to it because obviously Freddy's work is important. And actually... Uh, Freddy's work is part of my own research because he, a lot of people don't know about this side of his work, but he actually went to Guinea-Bissau, which is one of the former Portuguese colonies in Africa, and like helped them implement their education plan following independence. Um, And he engaged a lot with Lucifer African uh, leftist leaders and stuff. So there are a lot of links between what he was doing at the time um and what what other people were doing in my work but that's that's kind of outside of brazil and outside of these lucifer african countries there's not a lot of information about his travels around the world and particularly to africa um and how he impacted and and how they also impacted his work in brazil um which is my question right like i'm more interested in, in how his travels to brazil kind of bounced back when we got or how his travels beyond brazil excuse me kind of bounced back into his work once he was back in the country that he was born in and, you know, um, was actually implementing a lot of things in. So it'll be, now that I know about the Tuesdays of Mori link, I feel like my work is going to become even deeper. <laughs> We're gonna, I'm going to learn some stuff that I didn't know about um, at the time that I actually saw. I, I don't know. I feel bad now. Like, I feel like, yeah. I, and I hope, you know what I hope? I hope that like students that I have now, who are who I'm telling? I remember this this past semester in particular when I was teaching. This was like in uh, fall of 2017 when I was teaching that semester. I remember talking a lot about Brazil because it's an African diaspora class. So obviously, if you're talking about slavery and like Afro descendant uh, populations, Brazil is going to be on the list of places you talk about. And I hope that now considering what's happened in brazil politically and it's been in the news quite a bit in the united states because of who's become president um i wonder if my students will one day if not already kind of look back and say oh no wonder wendy talks so much about brazil like now it makes sense you know like okay what she mentioned about you know the the creeping uh right in brazil or like the increasing uh religious conservatism in brazil all those things i hope that they can kind of put two and two together um, if they haven't already done so 
to think about that. Like I am now doing or going to do with Tuesdays with Maury <laughs> when I was probably rude to my professors and being like, why are we watching this? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it's interesting how that, how that works out. Like how, how yeah. I can just, I can imagine, you know, uh, I've thought, or, you know, in my head sometimes as a student, like, Oh, you know, this is what I would like them to be talking about. And then I can just imagine how many times that they were talking about something important and I just wasn't able to see it. <laughs> yeah. That's what our podcast is for. We're we're to help fill in the blanks right? <laughs> for stuff you missed when you were in high school or college. <laughs> we're here to give you the real down low on what that stuff is about. That's why we're here. Yeah. Oh, no, it's it's interesting you mentioned the rising of the right in Brazil, and I think that one of uh, going to our year in the review a little bit, uh, like that's one of the things that we've seen is a rising of the right, not just in the United States but uh, globally. Oh and yeah. I think. For some people, they've seen how uh, neoliberalism has played an integral part of the rising of the right, as opposed to, you know, it happening in a vacuum or because of them, of the right dominating politics in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think for any, this is another plug, but for those of you who are interested in hearing about the Brazil side of the right growth, uh, that sounds weird, like I'm talking about some sort of tumor or something. But uh, again, like the right growth as opposed to the left growth. Uh, but yeah, it is It is sort of, I mean, if you think about it, the right, right politics did sort of metastasize, you know, in a lot of ways. It's almost as if overnight we kind of looked up and said, oh, crap, like every country almost is being run by a right wing um, leader of some sort, if not completely fascist. And especially in Latin America. And that's what's interesting because I think for a long time, people were not really paying attention to Latin America because so many people, including those on the left, are constantly focused on the West. Um, and mm -hmm. so they weren't looking at places like Asia, the Middle East, if, if not, I mean, obviously the Middle East, but only for the sake of war, right? Um, mm -hmm. But they weren't, looking at, they weren't looking at political movements that were happening there. They definitely weren't looking at political movements that were happening in Latin America, most of which the U.S., was orchestrating like literally to put the right in power. All this mm -hmm. stuff is happening under our nose. And I think, you know, it's frustrating for those of us, um, myself included, but like, I'm just one little person. I'm not like, you know, anyone important, but I was talking about this, this rightward growth in, in Latin America. And I think a lot of people just kind of ignored it. They were like, oh, well, you know, whatever, it's not a big deal. And then Trump got elected. And then all of a sudden people gave a shit about the fact that like, oh, the right is growing all over the world, including these countries that we don't like to give second thought about that we've actually been messing with forever, basically. I mean, I can't think of a period in time during which the US wasn't, like once the US was established as a country, there's not a period in its history when it wasn't messing with Latin America, basically. Um, so it's frustrating that like people kind of slept on that. But the plug here is that because so I don't dominate the entire discussion today talking about Brazil. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about like how Brazil ended up with a fascist as president elect Jair Bolsonaro, you can listen to several podcast interviews that I did recently uh, with other uh, podcasts like Delete Your Account. I did an interview with Season of the Bitch and I also did an interview with Historically. Um, and I posted all of those on the Patreon site as well. So people can go and check those out if they want to learn a little bit more. And obviously I have uh, two really big threads on what happened uh, in the 2018 election for Brazil on my my personal Twitter page. I also linked them on Left POC. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I put them on the Patreon. But if I haven't already, I will post those just for people who want to get a kind of 
background, a little bit of background info without having to sit through 30 minutes right now of me talking about Brazil, which I'm not going to do because I'm like, I'm exhausted. I don't even want to talk about Brazil anymore. It's like so frustrating. Uh, and it's depressing. Like I'm here right now and I think things are pretty calm before the storm, you know, like it kind of has mm -hmm. that weird feeling because the president doesn't become president until January 1st of 2019. Mm -hmm. So right now they're kind of in this lull moment and it's right before Christmas and whatever, you know, so people are kind of like, I don't know, things are kind of slow right now. And he's been, the president elect has been doing all sorts of effed up stuff already. He's in trouble right now for a corruption scandal, of course. <laughs> so there's a lot of stuff going on, um, but it's also really, it's like all quiet right now. And I think that, I don't know, I hope people are preparing for what could happen. Uh, but I think also people are just tired. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I don't, I don't mm. know. I don't know how to, how to put it, but yeah, anyway, back to the discussion. I keep derailing us. My apologies. <laughs> oh, no worries. Back to the real discussion, the year in review. You were, we were talking about the year in review. So, oh, my yeah, apologies. I... And the growing right wing around the world. This is where you, it's your fault, Richard. You led, <laughs> well, me, you led me down this path. <laughs> well, I think, I think there's a real interconnectedness between a lot of these, uh, these themes and stories that we're hearing. And uh, one thing that you mentioned that stuck out to me, and uh, I'm, I've seen more clearly throughout the year is uh, how much the West or even leftists in the West seem to disregard the rest of, especially the global South mm -hmm. and, and how, how little of a mention it gets in the conversation. The most, the way I see that manifested most recently is in the uh, green new deal idea. Mm -hmm. And like, uh, Essentially, this is our best uh, path forward towards uh, dealing with the three primary, you know, catastrophic events that are slated to occur over the next in within the next hundred years. So that's you know, energy shortage, uh, drinkable water shortage, and uh, climate refugees from rising tides, and mm -hmm. so and, and massive uh, you know displacements. So those those three things are are three uh, events that basically all the sciences are, are going to happen in the next hundred years. It's just a matter of how we're going to address them. And... Clearly we're going to address it by <laughs> shipping people to Mars. That's the best <laughs> way to deal with climate change. We're just going to yeah. turn the world into um, Blade Runner pretty much. That's the, yeah. that's the plot of Blade Runner. Like <laughs> they have right. all these separate planets that people live on and like slave colonies and stuff. So I think that's going to be our, uh, our next path. And, and that's the upshot. I mean, the more like <laughs> the, the the more depressing one is, is we don't even get to space, and we're just Mad Maxing it here in the wasteland right. that we created. <laughs> like, I love that our two our our two alternatives are like really funny or not funny, but like extreme dystopian eighties like films. You know, right? <laughs> like, do you want Mad Max or do you want Blade Runner? Like, those are your options. Good luck. <laughs> Right, it's like so. Then you see in Blade Runner, it's like, well, you know, they had some cool stuff, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> like, although I admit, you know, like you know, riding on the front of a like semi truck playing guitar with big flaming stacks behind me sounds pretty awesome too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so getting shot at, having no potable water, and all those other you know things, not so much. But, and then the question is like, is our dystopian future the '80s version of these films or like the recent remakes? 
Right. Because, and like, which one is worse? Like, is the newer, more like better CGI versions of these dystopias? Is it better or worse than like the eighties option? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, well, not think about it. I guess Escape New York was pretty good. <laughs> like yeah. the Escape series. So I don't know mm-hmm. uh, if I'm picking a Did dystopia. They remake this? Uh, I have no remakes though. So I guess okay. it just bridged the eighties and nineties. So okay. Okay. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with um, Blade Runner. I think just because I, mm, I don't know. I think I think Blade Runner sounds like a better option because there is an escape, right? Like if you manage to get to another planet, you have right. that option. But it does, it does seem the most hopeful of of the dystopias, right? Yeah, like there's a <laughs> there's a glimmer of hope. Like if you're rich enough, you can get off the you can get off the Earth. But in Blade in Max. Mad Max, you don't. You're just like stuck, sand and stuff. Like I can't deal with that. That's too much for me. Yeah, I think I'm... It, <laughs> I mean, we joke, but like the thing that gets me is like when you look at how this Green New Deal, and I mean, there isn't really much to it yet. It's mostly just like the concept of hey, climate change is happening. We have mm-hmm. to do something on like a Hoover Dam moonshot type scale because that's how serious this issue is, and it, it it's that serious and more. Right. And, and so, like, uh, but when you look at it, there, I, uh, most of the the advocates of the Green New Deal, and if you look at the phrasing and how they talk about it, when, you won't see much mention of the global south at all. Let alone, you know, where where is this green revolution coming from? Where are all these uh, raw materials getting taken from? And it's not from the United know. States. And it's like, so what it looks, what it sounds and looks like is. I mean, you got the Republicans and, and the right in the U.S., which is essentially seems to either be banking on Mars or dying before this becomes a problem. And you got the left, which is mitigating it in such a way that basically it's still going to sacrifice billions of people across the global south and that, that there is no that it doesn't leave any hope for them. It, it's just a way to mitigate those experiences for people in the U.S., and Which, this has been a debate for a really yeah. long time, too, actually, because like one of the things that I remember people saying a few years ago, even not even now, but like a few years back before we even were calling things a Green New Deal, was there was a concern on the part of um, people who were really concerned about environmentalism and sort of uh, like mineral mining and things like that, in, in especially in sub-Saharan Africa, this mm-hmm. discussion about technology being dependent upon all these mining industries that were ex- incredibly exploitive, right? And even even in the discussion of veganism, which that, that has also been forwarded as like one, you know, personal thing that people can do if we all, if, if like the majority of the country stopped eating so much meat because of the destruction that the meat industry causes, right? Factory farming and all of that in terms of in, its environmental impact. But one of the arguments that people were making was like, well, that's great and all, but what do we do about like all the incredibly harmful stuff that's happening in the farming industry as well, right? And how do we, how can we like bridge all of these smaller movements so that there's more humanitarian approaches to every industry and thus, you know, a way to kind of like counteract the long-term destruction, destruction that they've been involved in. And as you said, there's often this, it's sort of like the people who are the victims of even our seemingly pro-ecological movements are always left as kind of an afterthought, you know, like how do we 
I think it's, and I think it's hard when we talk about these things, because especially if we reduce it to all things that like people can do on an individual level. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, because for me, I'm not saying don't do these things on an individual level. You should, you know, eat less meat. You should recycle. You should, you know what I'm saying? You should reduce waste and things like that. That's all positive. But the question is, how can we also be mindful of the impact that we're having beyond our personal choices, right? Like on a systemic level, what can we do to reduce harm? Especially, as you said, I think, and this is a super important point on a global scale, right? Um, and also how, like, the other thing that I think about all the time too in these discussions is, you know, why are we not looking to the global, the quote unquote global South for remedies or like ways to fix this? Because if you look at who's wasting the most and like who's producing the most waste in terms mm -hmm. of pollution and things like that, who is it? Like, it's not them. You know what I mean? We're, we're dumping it all on them at the end of the day. Um, mm -hmm. So how can we kind of, I don't know. I mean, how do, how do we in, in rhetoric and in action decenter uh, the West and then also hold the West accountable for all the shit that it's doing to make the, the climate change situation even worse. Yeah, it's, uh, I, there was a recent report published, uh, I think, uh, in GQ and a couple other places uh, that they mentioned it, uh, that essentially said that about 70% of the, the problem is coming from about 100, uh, the top 100 companies. And so it's the, it's the boardrooms and those, and those, the billionaires in those boardrooms that actually can change, can make these changes. The, like they right. can call a meeting tomorrow and implement new policies. It, regardless of whether we want to consume as much as we do now, half as much or twice as much is like, they actually have the control and the power based off of how our system works. And, and so essentially we, we realize that this isn't, this isn't happening to them. This is something that they are participating in. Mm -hmm. and, and I guess we ask ourselves is like, what will, what are they, what's their plan? What are they thinking? How, how does this, how does this work out for them? Because presumably it seems as though at least that th there must be an upshot for them in this scenario. I mean, I think I think for them it's just like they they know that they'll be all right until the end, you know, until yeah. the earth just completely destroys itself. They'll be okay because they have bottled water access, they have islands, they have the funds to escape to cleaner places, you know, like they have. And if you think about it, I just know from my own experience traveling. When I compare the U.S. to uh, Brazil, for example, or like even Mozambique, one of the things that I miss all the time when I'm abroad is fresh air. And that's that's not saying much because the air quality in the U.S., is, especially in, in major cities, is not the best. And it's getting exponentially worse like per year. Um, but I would say that, you know, when I think about like what places are are already in a condition where it's basically what the U.S. is going to become, all those places are in the global south. And so the question is like, how do we, uh, I don't think we can impress upon CEOs that there's a problem because they can always go to someplace that's cleaner in the meantime, right? Like they can vacation mm -hmm. somewhere where they don't have to worry about dirty air quality and they don't have to worry about like not having access to clean water or having access to water period, right? Because you and I were talking about the access to water question a couple days ago. Mm -hmm. um, but like, I don't think they have to worry about it. And so I think for them, it's like out of sight, out of mind. And they don't care what happens to the rest of us, right? They obviously already don't care what's happening in other parts of the world. So for them, 
I just, I, I don't think there's ever going to be that moment of reckoning where they're, where it's going to matter. And they're always going to have an escape. Now, what happens to their kids is a different question. Um, because I think after a while, obviously we're not going to have an escape, a place to quote unquote escape to left on the earth. There's not going to be any place to go. Um, but for them right now, I don't think they're worried about they just they just don't have a few they're nihilists basically I mean, they don't have a vision for the future except for yeah. passing money down i guess I don't it, know. it feels like it's that's essentially been uh prevalent throughout western society for decades now uh that, yeah. you know <laughs> like hey i'm just gonna make sure i give you is enough i'm gonna give my family enough money so that they can get a nice bunker somewhere or a nice loft in the you know the walled city or whatever <laughs> you know in in the amazon city or whatever they end up you know, the Comcast city or whatever ends up being. And that that's the plan is essentially right. align, align yourself with the corporation that you think is going to end up in a, in a powerful position in this post-apocalyptic hellscape. And it's also, that also raises the question of growing militarism too. I mean, obviously militarism has not stopped. It's gotten increasingly worse um, in terms of U S military power. We just, this past year, you know, they, every year they, they pass a bill for billions and billions and billions of more dollars to the US military. And so then that makes you question too, like, okay, what's gonna happen when we're at a point where we are, we're, we're, we, as in people in the US at least are literally fighting tooth and nail for basic resources. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not ignoring places like Flint and cities that don't have access to basic resources. I'm saying as a nation, as a whole, right? If we ever get to the point in, upcoming future uh, in the recent future again recent future what is the word i can't i can't speak english anymore guys i'm sorry like i, I don't know what is the word that we say when like the I near future it. yeah there we go the near future but yeah the near future when we're competing directly for these resources i mean think about what's going to happen when I mean, it's just going to be calling the military, you know? And I think we, again, we've already seen this happening in other parts of the world. And that's why all this discussion about uh, population control is mm. disgusting. Like, you've mm. seen it because every, every five seconds, I, I see another article out by Bill Gates. Right. <laughs> about how Africans need to stop having so many babies. Macron also gave a fucking ridiculous speech at the beginning of his presidency. Imp not implying, but literally saying that like African women are having too many babies. Like and basically all these rich white men are saying, close your legs, African women. But the reality is like people in Africa and it's, they're talking specifically to sub-Saharan African people. They are not, they're not the ones weighing heavily on the environment. You know, it's like people who don't even have kids who live in the West, but who are incredibly wasteful. And I think it's, and the other thing too, that they don't think about is like the mortality rate in sub-Saharan African countries. And a lot of them is so high precisely because of war, starvation, military intervention, like all this shit that's happening with the US every five seconds, we hear another story about some soldier getting killed or whatever, disappearing. And you're like, I didn't even know we had a war going on there. What is happening? You know, like what? So I think that there's a real disconnect or I mean, these, these wealthy people know what they're talking about. Not that I agree with them, but I'm saying they, they are aware of the fallacy in what they're saying. But they yes. keep saying it anyway because they want to blame somebody else for the ills that they and their ilk caused. You know, it's not poor sub-Saharan African women who caused the fucking global environmental crisis. You know? I mean, yeah. Give me a break. 
what's scary about that is that means that they've made their choice. Is like they oh, yeah. know they know you know that the seventy percent of the uh, the problem is getting coming from them. They know that they control uh, more wealth than the bottom fifty percent, and they know that. And so their solution is well. We need less people. That that's the problem. There's too many people. Right. <laughs> it was like, no, it, it's a matter of distribution. Period. And and like, how many people have been saying this forever? <laughs> like, you remember in like I don't know middle school history where you learn about Malthus and all these assholes in Britain during the Industrial Revolution who were like, <laughs> gotta keep those poor people from breeding so much. Like, are you kidding me? It's 2018. We still have asshats saying this shit. Like now, like now, it's absurd. Yeah. I'm sorry. I just it makes no. me so angry. It's like I can't. Well, yeah, exactly. Anger and is like it and like I said, they've made their choice. It's like they they've chosen not you. So <laughs> it's like if it comes down to it, they're 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 saying let let people die. I'm not going to share more wealth. That's not that's not how this scenario ends. Exactly. And we've already the worst part is that we've already seen these fucking experiments in action. Like if you look at sterilization projects that's what's going to be next i guarantee it we've already seen this before but who did they sterilize if you look at u.s history of sterilization you look at sterilization in latin america sterilization in africa sterilization in asia it's always poor women who are victims of this crap and people with disabilities so they they had a huge you know like eugenics campaign in in the u.s for sterilizing people with mental disabilities right so like this this is going to repeat itself and they often try to dress it up in kind of a like, oh, everybody should have access to contraception and blah, blah, blah. But what did we see, for example, in Israel a few years back, African migrants to Israel? What were they doing? They were sterilizing them. They were giving them contraception that made them sterile, you know, against mm. oftentimes without any sort of educational program to tell them what was happening. And so I think that we're just going to see more of this on a mass scale. And that's going to be their solution in the, the meantime. It's always going to be solutions that impact the most vulnerable communities and the most vulnerable countries who don't really have a say in what's going on. And they're going to dress it up as, as aid, right? <laughs> like, we're yeah. helping them by giving them these, these plans, these medical sterilization plans. We're helping them. Like, no. No. Oh, no, that's one of the reasons I really love the the pedagogy of the oppressed is it help like help me wrap my mind around the oppressiveness of that you know style of intervention mm -hmm. and, and like and just how destructive and how re how it reinforces the oppressive structures that uh, the people are suffering from in the first place. And, you know, it's like the and the, you know, Bill Gates is like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to help Africa. It's like, well, the only reason you can help Africa more than anybody else is because you're ex helping to exploit them and, right. and much of the world. So it's like, right. It, it's a perpetuation and, and, and a sick cycle of exploitation and then paternal uh, aid as they or they will call it aid. But uh, in reality, it's just perpetuating the exploitation and reinforcing right. and it's it. like. If you take 90% of what people have and then you give them back 10%, you're not losing anything. You're not aiding anyone. It's like, it's not, you're not helping them. You're giving them what they're technically owed. But then, I mean, in the case of like positive aid, I'm not talking about sterilization and things like that, mm -hmm. but like medical equipment and medicine and things like that. Whenever they have these, you know, drop in like 
Clinton's <laughs> or Bill Gates or whoever, you know, these people that, that drop in and they come with their helicopters and crap and they drop a box and they say, congratulations, Africans, be happy that we're helping you. I mean, the reality is you're taking more than you're giving back, you know, like these people owe so many countries and so many communities for their wealth. I mean, literally, they've amassed wealth on the backs of all these people. And so the audacity for them to turn around and then say, you all need to stop producing. Now that we've, now that we've taken everything that you've worked for, that all of you multi, you know, large pop, quote unquote, large populations of people have done for us. Now we want you to stop reproducing, right? Like now we've taken everything from you, all of your labor. So don't make any more, <laughs> you know, like don't make any yeah. more people. It, it's it's a a global rehappening of a of, of not so different than what happened in the United States after you know they felt that they were done with slaves. Like, mm -hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. It was like, well, if y'all are going to make us like allow you to be free people, we're just going to get rid of all of you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I mean, people thought we to put it in Marxist terms. They say, you know, surplus population. It's literally the excess, yeah. right? So there's nothing. There's no more use for them. So the only use for them is now target practice. That's basically what it is, you know. And as so. they remain, they they remain as a threat, and and so like you know, mm -hmm. the the longer that they're allowed to to manifest and to to sit around, the, the more attractive they become to the other disenfranchised masses. And so they'll be shut down and you know gotten rid of in whatever ways uh, are feasible, depending on the circumstances. You know, we saw Saudi Arabia with Khashoggi. And we've seen, you know, other nations act in similar ways where, you know, if, if you're too critical or you're getting too much attention, drawing too much attention towards the things that they don't want attention drawn towards, they'll do whatever it takes to, to hush you up. Oh, that's another feature from our year in review uh, with that particular man. I, I just I, the, at this point, you know, I really. I don't know what to say because it's so predictable, right? Like we knew that the that the U.S. wasn't going to do anything about this man that they literally dismembered and killed, and it's all on tape. And I mean, it's just it's like the blatant violence that was enacted upon him, and then the fact that there's no recourse, like there's no no one's going to be held accountable for this because the U.S. and this, and Saudi Arabia are allies. I don't think we're going to ever see anything change about this, at least not in the near future. Um, in the recent future, <laughs> as I said earlier, <laughs> but like, I, I don't know, man, it, it's at this point, when I see these kinds of things, it makes you wonder, you know, like, what is the reach of our power as voters, right? And what is the reach of our power, even as just basic citizens, voters or non-voters, what can we do in situations like that? Now, given it's just one individual, but then when you start to look at things like the war in Yemen, right, which is also something that I think in this year really kind of came to the fore, even though people have been talking about it since its inception, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like people didn't know about it when it was happening under Obama, too. But I think this year, because it's happening under Trump, people are like, oh, we should start paying attention to that war over there that we've been funding for years and, like, didn't do anything to stop. Um, you know, I... I I don't know why, I guess just because of the blatant cruelty of it, but there's also blatant cruelty in the war that's been going on. I mean, they were blowing up school buses for God's sakes. So mm. why, why this one moment was, was the catalyst and also what is it that we can do as people who care? I mean, I, I don't know, I'm just kind of at a loss. When I see things like this that I know the US response, I get frustrated because I just feel like 
when it comes to foreign policy, there's very little that I as an individual can change, no matter how informed I am about what's happening. I don't know. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, it, it, the it, you feel powerless sometimes as an individual to see when you see things like this happening uh, or, you know, with the, the war in Yemen is a good example, the blockading and the, you know, the situation in Venezuela is another one where you see people that just want to live suffering for the sake of capitalism, you know, for right. the sake of uh, perpetuating imperialism, for the sake of uh, protecting billionaires' bottom lines. And that, it, it's disturbing and it feels overwhelming. Uh, like, there's a lot of details going on and, and nuance involved as well. But I think France, uh, at, in the recent uh, times, has given us some, it, it kind of gives me some hope. I mean, it, uh, depending on how it turns out, I think is going to uh, yeah. impact things. <laughs> and I mean, like, yeah and i mean like there's obviously uh like uh, i've seen expressed uh, the concerns about uh, whatever movements are inspiring in france it's also uh not taking any consideration of the global south so the the level of comfort the quality of life that people are looking to seek is still going to be dependent on the exploitation of people abroad and so that uh in left movements uh across the west uh, I think that's been a common theme in that a lot of people's leftist uh, and socialist beliefs stop at the border. And, and uh, I think in any reading of theory, uh, be it Marx uh, or uh, even people that have uh, worked from then, I, I don't really see one where you can make that, make it that way. I mean, I can understand uh, smaller nations, and you know ones that are coming up or being industrialized and so on and so forth where they could have a, a different perspective but from the united states perspective uh i i mean you can't your, your socialism can't stop at the border otherwise it, it's it's just a it's just better neoliberalism basically which is another which brings us to yet another uh highlight quote unquote from 2018 during which we saw some leftists quote unquote who decided that being against migrants was a good idea and that for whatever reason, we all of a sudden need to have rigid borders uh, and inflict violence against people who are uh, the victims of U.S. imperialism abroad. Thoughts, <laughs> Richard? Right. I mean, this right. has been eye-opening for me, at least, because I never thought we'd get to the point where we had people going on Tucker Carlson and, first of all, didn't think I'd ever see leftists, quote-unquote, on Tucker Carlson because he's basically a fascist, but also didn't think that uh, I'd have to worry about self-proclaimed leftists uh, being in favor of something that Tucker Carlson, which is a hard name to say for some reason for me, <laughs> Tucker Carlson, say that 20 times fast. Um, I don't know. I mean, I never thought I'd, I'd see the day when people were claiming to be on the left and also claiming to like being against being being i mean because i don't it's not that they're against migrants but they are in inevitably if you're saying that you want closed borders to the degree that they do and i think it's kind of i mean that's yeah, not a lot of cherry picking of leftist ideology to defend what is basically the far right case against people of color from other countries 
if we're going to make an argument to close our borders, it, it, we better close them with our military on this side of them. <laughs> like, yeah. It's, uh, you know, like mentioned Africa earlier. It's like we say we have a light footprint in Africa with like over a dozen military bases. I mean, so, it's but... absurd. It's completely, I mean, I, I as you said, if, you, if you're going to close the border, better bring back the military too, because they're everywhere. They're literally everywhere. And my point is, you can't complain about people coming here and talk about closing borders without also discussing the violence that's being inflicted upon them in our name with our tax dollars by our military. It's just, it's a complete disconnect that's intentional. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, I don't, these people know that. These people aren't fully aware of U.S. foreign policy, and they don't mention that in their little articles for right-wing magazines and right-wing uh, TV shows when they talk about, you know, people who are escaping violence that we're causing. They don't mention that part. Mm -hmm. It's like, we burned down your house, but I don't know why you think you should be able to come over to ours. Right, yeah. <laughs> like, How dare you? Right? Like, I, it, it's mind-blowing, and we see it uh, repeated over and over in country after country, and with the, you know, it, it's, we've seen it repeated throughout this country's past. And it, you, like you said, it, it's, it's disconcerting when you see it coming from uh, self-proclaimed leftists that you know that they're embracing this type of view and i guess you know uh, from to uh, parry back a bit towards the concept of uh, reviewing the years the beginning of the year i i had this feeling you know it was like i had the dejection of you know bernie losing and feeling somewhat hopeless like i mean if we can't elect bernie which is which was uncomfortably to my right even then then there like there isn't the the two party system is not offering us a solution to those three catastrophic problems that i presented earlier or mentioned earlier like that they, they are not offering us a solution period it, it's just a matter of uh how either of them want to mitigate the damages for a select group of people within the united states that's mm -hmm. what's on the table in the current political current political spectrum and that it's it's just unacceptable for me and you mentioned it, it feels hopeless uh, as an individual, but then I just look at some of the stories that we covered, you know, uh, you know, whether it's uh, Castro's history will absolve me. And I've done studying about uh, Che Guevara as well, uh, or uh, when we talked like some of the Black Panther stuff that I've been looking at or uh, just uh, some of the various and then uh Carlos, uh, I don't, I don't want to try and butcher his last name, but the <laughs> mini, uh, yeah, Marigala. the mini Marigala, uh, mini manual of the urban gorilla. That that was uh, like when you when I read these things, I'm inspired. You know, it's like mm -hmm. their their situations didn't seem much more hopeful than ours. You know, uh, and, and so looking at what what it took to to get from. I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's not my fault, guys. It's, you hear the whole street in my apartment, so I'm so sorry for the man randomly revving his motor repeatedly in the background. Okay. Anyway, well, going, I'm sorry. The, the, the digital distortion made it unclear. It's like, did, did a, a group of people just manifest outside your door? <laughs> <laughs> like, suddenly there's people chanting outside. like, yeah, Wendy's right. It's like, we're recording this. They can't hear us live. <laughs> <laughs> i'm so sorry everyone it's not my uh, fault but keep going oh uh, uh 
I guess, uh, but yeah, just uh, seeing like their situations don't didn't seem much more hopeful than ours, and so uh, seeing what I the the thing that I saw then and has become ever clearer since then is just how critical and how important education is in that process. And I think one of the important things that I learned just most recently in Ferry, although it's been mentioned uh, going all the way back to, or at least it's back to Marx and, and Hegel uh, regarding uh, dialectic, you know, investigating and, you know, the, the, the concept of establishing our truth and understanding through uh, dialect and, and, and not uh, a, as uh, Frary calls it, uh, the banking model of education, or uh, as other people have referred to it, and we talked about earlier, you know, more of a paternalistic uh, aid situation. It's it's not so much that we're going like, I, I, as I see myself, uh, I don't consider myself, you know, like an educator or uh, anything like that. But in the sense of what we're doing here, you know, we're going along and we're reading these and trying to help interpret these texts. Uh, at least as we see them for our audience. But what that means is that we're only part of this, you know, our engagement, our, our interpretations, our reading is only a part of it. It's, we need to educate ourselves as well. Uh, and neither of us, no, uh, those of you listening or us, uh, what we're saying, we're not learning if we're not dialoguing if we're not discussing it and, and finding our contradictions and identifying them and identifying themes and, and recognizing the and, and talking through them then, then we're not really getting closer to knowledge if we just accept what somebody else tells us a, as knowledge without interacting with it ourselves then uh, what frary and a lot of uh, what i've read throughout the literature is that we're not really learning. We're not really, and, and it's also talked about with how the difference between theory and praxis and that, you know, if you're all theory or all praxis, that, that that's problematic, that it has, they have to be conjoined together in order to be effective and productive. And it, it, it's... Sorry again, motor's <laughs> revving outside. I feel like I'm at like Formula One and I didn't know. <laughs> I wasn't expecting Formula One today. Um, so again, sorry everyone for the motors revving. Keep going, Richard. Oh, but just and so how important that is, and then so then that makes uh, the people that like at least portray a, a genuine desire to improve the situation, uh, be they you know socialist, communist, or uh, closer to the neoliberal scale uh, or side of the uh, spectrum. Uh, if they want to make things better, then. A, a dialectic engagement about how and why you can't just pour this information into people and uh, expect, you know, the results that you're wanting. Uh, and then how then do we engage and, and not think that we're like that, you know, that there's a group of elites or of knowledgeable people that need to go and educate the, the unwashed masses, but that they're, there's an unwashed masses and there's a, you know, working class and there's a bourgeoisie and that we have things that we can learn from each other. And it's a bit, I don't know, out there from Frary, but, uh, and it reflects more how I feel though, but like that if we love each other and we do this from a place of love, then we'll recognize that we're all 
suffering from an oppression and that there's a benefit in it for all of us to lift all of us out of this oppression, whether, no matter where you fall on that scale, either uh, in the class side, politically, or anywhere else, is that, that there, even if uh, the quality of your life as you understand it, like how much water you can waste or how much food you can waste or, uh, you know, how far, how much uh, fuel you can waste, like even if those things go down and so you would presume that would be a lower quality of life the what is life is the discovering uh of that knowledge and the and the humanization of of the individual the you know that engagement in the social reality and so whether you have uh you know a fancy mansion or you have a, a tin shack it's it's being able to explore that that I think people value. And that's why you can find people that are, by all measurements, happy, living in some of the most what to look like to us the uh, the most atrocious conditions. And then you can see people in the United States living in the most posh and lavish lifestyles, and they're miserable. It's it's because they're not the 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 oppression that exists because of the system uh, attacks all of us, uh, and uh, the freedom from it isn't just uh monetary you know you don't achieve it you know just just getting a certain comfort of life isn't enough to achieve that fulfillment and that happiness and that is one of the biggest things that i've gained out of the year and and uh it it's really helped me to understand how i can do something moving forward is that you know it's about raising people's awareness of our commonality and why we have to fight and we see it manifesting a bit in france where it's uh it runs the political spectrum and it, it's not necessarily a far left movement and it, it's it's disregarding the global south but it shows that uh people can identify their the pressure outside of themselves given the circumstances and it doesn't necessarily like the key point of the education is so that when it comes to the point of well what do you guys want how do you guys want to fix this is that you get a solution that's not based in the same oppressive ideology that you're fighting. So, see, this is why I like having you as a co-host for Reading Revolution, because you say things that are really profound. And, uh, like, I'm just kind of angry. <laughs> and you're like, <laughs> let's let's talk about, like, I, I feel like I'm listening to, you know, the, the guy, oh, God, I can't remember his name, but the guy who used to paint with the big fro. Uh, yeah, Bob Ross. Yes. Yeah, Bob Ross. You're like the Bob Ross of this podcast. So I really appreciate, as per usual, like everything you have to say. And I agree with what you said. I think my reservations about the what is it, Gilets Jaunes uh, protests, yellow vest protests mm -hmm. in France is because I've seen so many protests in the past few years get co-opted or even before they started, they were basically corporate protests. So, I mean, I'm not saying this, this yellow vest protest is corporate, but I'm just saying that I've seen so much co-optation of uh, protesting and I've kind of burned from that. Um, and I think that, you know, because I saw what happened in Brazil, right. Or a, a protest that started as like very clearly left-wing became a right-wing monster pretty quickly, like within a month, more or less. Um, and then that helped generate the 
the sort of energy and support for right-wing candidates for a coup and then for the fascists that they had coming into office in January. It's hard for me right now. And even I think if you look at Ukraine, for example, some stuff that happened in Venezuela, like there's so many cases around the world where we've seen protests that started out one way and then went completely to another place in a very short period of time because of, you know, external intervention, gov- like certain funding measures and things like that. So it's very hard for me to, to see and want to say something, right? And so today I was actually reflecting on uh, this protest, but also thinking more about what Macron was doing right after he got elected, um, mm-hmm. that I think was really important and that a lot of people kind of sort of overlooked. Um, and most of the mainstream media was not talking about it because at that time they were still all fawning over Macron and talking about how great he was and how handsome he was. And oh my God, you know, like neoliberalism is, isn't dead. Yay. Right? <laughs> like, yeah, like he's gonna save the EU and like all this bullshit. And and I think, you know, when we think back though to what was happening shortly after he got elected, he basically continued the violence and austerity that Hollande had put into practice in the Bangia, which is like the suburbs outside of the major cities. And in suburbs, in this case, for people who aren't as familiar with uh, French geographic layout, which I don't expect very many people to be, <laughs> but it is, it's sort of, it's not, when we say suburbs, when we're talking about France and also in Brazil, funny enough, it's not like the white picket fence, middle class, big, like, you know, McMansion, two cars, garage and a dog kind of situation like we when we talk about suburbs in the u.s when we say suburbs of major cities in places like brazil and france we're talking about predominantly poor predominantly of color um, marginalized in, in some other social way so for example in in the case of france a lot of the people who live in the suburbs are poor they're um, migrants or children of migrants many of which were former French colonies, so you're looking at North Africa, parts of Sub-Saharan Africa as well, um, the Caribbean somewhat, and then also uh, people who are economically deprived um, and also sometimes uh, made up of religious minorities. So in the case of France, for example, you have a large Muslim community that lives in these uh, suburbs. And so basically, under Hollande, who himself was a socialist, quote unquote, uh, he engaged in a lot of um, activity that that involved extreme policing, limitation of civil liberties, and austerity against these communities. Um, also, France was under basically a state of emergency for a big chunk of time leading into uh, uh, Macron's presidency because of several terrorist attacks within the president at the time alone. So he took advantage of that and extended those uh, moments of quote-unquote emergency. Um, for the long term. And so Hollande, once once Macron took over, uh, he basically instituted a law that was sort of like what we consider the Patriot Act in the U.S. It was very similar to that um, and in terms of its limitations on people's rights. And of course, the police were going after more predominantly the people who lived in the suburbs. And so what's interesting when we think about you know, the crackdowns and all these awful things that were happening to these people that are basically ruled and rendered invisible in France, despite having, you know, a fairly large part of being fairly large part of the population. Um, The U.S. press pretty much ignored what was happening to them. Um, There are some things that I saw on Politico that I posted. There's also like a discussion on democracy now, but all of the major newspapers and, and magazines and things like that, 
it was sort of an afterthought. They'd have a little paragraph here, a little comment there, but for the most part, it was glowing praise of Macron. And so now it's interesting to kind of think about how they've been responding to this yellow vest uh, protests, which I don't want to say that the U.S. press has been exactly favorable, uh, but they have been covering it a lot, right? Um, and it's just kind of fascinating to me that there was pretty much <laughs> like very little regard for what was happening in the lead up to this, that I think once you trace back to what was being said and done in the earlier stages of his presidency, you can really kind of, tra- okay, you say, okay, now it makes sense what's happening now. You know, even though these people that are, it, it seems like a very mixed group of people too. That's why I also have been very cautious about assessing it. Like I've been kind of hanging back and watching things as they develop. Um, because on the one hand, I see reports that they're right wingers. On another, on the other side, I see that they're Antifa people present. You know, I can't get a hold of what the the makeup of this protest is. I don't know. I just know it's against Macron, which like good for them because Macron is awful. I think uh, I mentioned earlier that neoliberalism is providing a window for the rise of neo-fascism or for mm-hmm. fascism. And sure. like, part of that is because uh, the, this policy, I mean, you can it, either either side of the political spectrum could advocate the policy, the, the triggering policy that is being credited for the uh, issues in France with the, the gas taxes like that could have come out of either side of the political spectrum but because mm-hmm. it's coming out of neoliberalism that's the that's the face that it's getting and so it enrages or, or it motivates people on the right who are going to be inclined towards fascism and fascism plays well towards uh this the billionaire uh system just because it's a lot easier to replace a fascist with a fascist that you know is favorable to you than it is to try to replace a democratic population with a democratic population that's favorable to you. If, if the population mm-hmm. just isn't favorable to you and, and they've arrived there as a democratic uh, decision, that's a lot different than if, you know, uh, some fascist has made you out to be the enemy. And now the new fascist that you've replaced them with is like, Oh, actually they're the reason we're getting all these billions of dollars in funding. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Versus, uh, as opposed to trying to convince the people is like, no, I promise you that these uh, big U.S. corporations coming into our country are, are here to help us. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite, guys. But it, uh, um, I, I do have some people that I'm uh, that I talk to that are in France, and they have uh, reflected back to me that it is essentially it is a large mixed group of people, mm-hmm. and to some effect that what you're seeing now, the yellow vest aspect of it, is a lot of those types of policies and the the austerity impacting the people that thought that they were going to be left out of it mm-hmm. and, and and now they're losing their shit you know <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah and like and because it's a, a segment of the population that is traditionally considered the you know the the good people as opposed to you know if it was a bunch of migrants out there saying the exact same thing and having longer suffered the same circumstances it would be the right the idea of it being a riot would be much more uh you know oh this is totally out of control these people are uh, you know rather than being embraced by the right as a resistance to neoliberalism this is how mm-hmm. you're seeing it paint, portrayed and uh it's particularly in the u.s and right stream or in right-wing media that oh this is a this is people lashing out against uh neoliberalism in favor of uh, conservatism and lower taxes and so on and so forth. It's like, no, 
a large portion of the people support the idea of you know limiting greenhouse emissions by taxing the problem is, is how taxes always roll downhill to the the people that have the least ability to pay them and right. and, and so like that that's the unifying uh, thing is that everybody can agree that they're they're all getting screwed over by this group of people who say that they're trying to make the situation better but they want to they want to do it off the back of the the working class and and so that's that unifying factor i think is right but i, w I mentioned earlier how important education is is because uh there's a fred hampton clip uh, about it uh but essentially if the people are educated, they'll say that they they hate the oppressor uh, instead of the in, in the United States, oftentimes, and from our perspective, uh, the white man or whatever, the white billionaire. But if you hate the oppressor and rather than uh, like uh, uh, you making a target of a particular group uh, based off of some superficial uh, feature, then when it comes to finding solutions or improving the situation, you find improvements to the situation rather than just uh, renegotiations of the broken system. Right. And that's my concern in this case. I mean, and what I've seen in so many other protests that were co-opted. And in fairness, that's where it looks like it's, this is going to end up heading. And, and, yeah. and, that's, and where the United States, like they see in the U.S. that there's a movement growing of energized people. And what they want to do is they want to, they want it. They want us to burn ourselves out and get brought back into the fold. And and the way that they do that is, is through this by some by giving us an action to unite around, but then making sure in such in situations such as in France that the the unity is is so fragile that once it collapses, it gives them the opportunity to come back in and offer to be the saviors by re-implementing mm -hmm. the same things that you guys were just fighting against. Right. And and that and goes I, throughout history before we even had democracies or anything like that when people right. just revolt. Yes. Of course. I think too that like one of the reasons why I've been sort of hesitant to really wade into this discussion uh on the yellow vest protest is also just because you know, I, I hate to be this person, right? Like I know this is this is like a tired response, but I'm just gonna say it anyway. Like I'm I'm exhausted of I'm exhausted from people completely ignoring protests when the people who are at the forefront are people of color um because as you were kind of hinting at earlier you know like when it's when it's the most oppressed like poor people of color out in the streets it's a riot then right it's everyone is violent the police have a right to crack down uh, you know any sort of negative response to them is justified and it's also never i mean there's there's been a lot of really good writing about for example the haitian revolution where for the longest time no one would acknowledge the Haitian Revolution as a revolution. There was this complete disavowal of it being a revolution because it was slaves, right? It's like mm -hmm. these, these black slaves don't know what the hell they're doing. They're just they're just doing something to kill time. They're just being violent like how they always are, right? Yeah, it'll so pass think, too. It'll pass. Like yeah, eventually, pass. we'll get it back under control. We'll get it back under control. Right. Like there's there's no intellectual underpinnings of this. It's just it's just people being like animals that they are, right? And I think that that unfortunately that kind of thought still pervades when it comes to protests that's waged by people of color. Because I remember very clearly when there were protests in the suburbs that I was talking about before of mm -hmm. Muslims, Arabs, you know, black people from African countries, et cetera. And they were rioting, quote unquote. They weren't protesting for their rights. They were rioting, right? 
Um, cause there had been, there had been several instances of police violence against people who live in those kinds of communities. Um, we saw this in England too, where there were quote unquote riots in the poor outskirts of London. And the response from the press was not, oh, look at those people, you know, fighting for their rights. It was look at these animals tearing down and burning up their communities. And I think that there's a real, I mean, even hell, I, I live in Baltimore, you know what I mean? Like, even mm -hmm. when I think about, I wasn't in Baltimore during the time of the Freddie Gray protests, but I remember seeing on the news for sure, the whole, the language around the response of poor black people in Baltimore who have been oppressed for centuries at this point, like literally being, they're dealing with police violence nonstop. I mean, it's, and it's bad, Richard, like it's not, it's, and, and I think we, we see on the news is like one thing, but when you live there and you realize the extreme economic disparities and resource disparities between one community that could be a block away from the other one. It's very clear. And I think in like for me, reflecting back on the those protests at that time, now that I live there, a lot of things make more sense. Just seeing the sort of spatial segregation and violence that people have to deal with who live in these communities. Um, but I think that, you know, there's never a full recognition when of 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 protests as an intellectual endeavor or anything like that when it's done by people of color, predominantly of people of color, you know, it's just never acknowledged. And I think that's why for me, in some ways I have been, and, and also just because I've been burned from like seeing protests being co-opted by the right, I've just been kind of hanging back because I'm like, I think it's important for us to understand that, you know, that, or not understand, but just, just reflect on like when we decide to recognize something for what it is, as opposed to downplaying the, the, the meaning of it, the significance of it, just because of the people's bodies that are out in the street. You know, what color are those people, right? Um, mm -hmm. What are their backgrounds? What is even, not even just like a question of race, but also the socioeconomic backgrounds. Because I think this idea of the working class, right now I hear a lot of people talking about, oh, you know, these are French workers and blah, blah, blah. Okay, so the people who were protesting in the Bande a couple years ago weren't? Like, are they not working? They're just all like slobs, you know what I'm saying? So the way we, even the language that I think people don't, it's, it's not intentional, you know what I'm saying? But it's, it's completely reflecting a bias, I think, that, that people have uh, towards one group of people protesting versus another group of people protesting. Um, even when we saw like the, the protests against Trump, when we had the, uh, the J20 protests versus the Women's March. And I think there, you know, there were images of people at the women's march in different parts, not not the DC one, I don't think, but at, at different women's marches, the smaller ones around the country, where they were like shaking hands with police and taking pictures of police. And it's like, and I, and it, same thing happened here in Brazil. There was a, there were lots of cases of like right wing protesters taking pictures with police, and then you see the other protests when they were they were predominantly left wing and they were getting beaten by the police, you know. So there's a real, like, there's a, a disconnect and in, in terms of the framing of, of the protests. And, and for me personally, like, I like to have a better understanding of what's going on before I weigh in on anything. But I think that's why I've also sort of been hesitant to express any sort of like, oh, yeah, this is great because I don't know really what's going on. And I also, uh, you know, I'm always, I'm always skeptical when I see people who, we're not necessarily um, paying attention or interested when stuff was happening to poor people of color and who are migrants. 
in these other places when I when I don't see the same kind of interest expressed there, but like all of a sudden who are enthusiastic about what's going on now when it's a different set of faces, it mm -hmm. makes me wary. You know, like I'm kind of like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm yeah. completely wrong. No, well, I, of... you actually i mean you remind you all that kind of reminded me of uh, several things uh i mean you mentioned the crackdown uh that was going on in these communities and essentially it looked a lot or was similar to what was going on in new york right around right after 9 11 uh where mm -hmm. basically the the lines of civil liberties and uh in our case the fourth amendment right were being blurred or disregarded altogether and uh, communities were reacting to that like right when you're invading us and you know like uh, and then assuming guilt in places like oh you know you said negative things you must have been part of this thing because they were also dealing with you know uh their own uh, a couple terrorist attacks or whatever however you want to phrase it uh, that they were mm -hmm. responding to and so they were you know questioning families and in, in invading people's lives in a way that it's hard for americans i think uh, that haven't been in a community that's been cracked down on like that to even really understand or kind of imagine mm -hmm. uh, it, it doesn't seem like something that would happen in the modern world uh, as far as it's portrayed uh, it seems more like something out of a, a dystopian movie but it, it, right it, but the dystopian, dystopian movies are always based on current day reality right so mm -hmm. that's but, uh, <laughs> but you mentioned now. The not caring is like, uh, it's the same people that are, you know, waiting on bated breath for the next thing that Mueller's going to tell them. Didn't care when Mueller was a part of that in New York or Comey was a part of that right. in New York. Like uh, the, the thing or any of the things that they had done to oppress and abuse uh, uh, disadvantaged uh, communities in this country or globally, like they're mm -hmm. uh, uh, participated in and or uh, personally responsible for some atrocious things that the the FBI or uh, was involved in at the time, or whichever respective agency in his in Mueller's case, being a attorney in New York and so on and so forth. Like, there's just so many different aspects of this that, like, all the overlapping, and that's one of the things that I, we've been teasing the pedagogy of Espresso. Uh, and I'm going to go ahead and say, uh, if you only read one thing that we've covered uh, this year for Reading Revolution. This would be the one that I would pick. And and if you start reading it and it gets difficult, uh, and if you could only read one page, I would suggest reading the first page of chapter two. And like, <laughs> <That's very strange>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, for me, it was just like in in school. Uh, I recognized uh, the you know this picture, the banking model of education, and the the contradiction that it presented with the constant calls for us to think for ourselves, think out of the box, you know, be imaginative, all these types of things. It's like, well, but whenever we question anything that you tell us, you, you just tell us, no, write it down, remember it, it's going to be on mm -hmm. the test. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, well, wait a minute. Did did Christopher Columbus discover America? Weren't there people here? Oh, well, don't worry about it. We He discovered it here. It's like, well, did he even land in the United States? No, don't worry about <laughs> it. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, if we don't have that dialogue, then we're not really learning. We're just uh, regurgitating information and most of it doesn't stick. And what does stick is just the systemic uh, stuff and the problems that we see or manifest in the ways that it does. And it's just like, so being able to make connections between different things. So like I said, with the Tuesdays of Mori, with the pedagogy, with the what's going on in the U.S., what's going on for all these connections, That that's 
that's my drug of choice <laughs> like mm-hmm. is is uh finding material that does that and so the the pedagogy of the press really connected a lot of things for me and gave me clarity and i mentioned uh, a little bit before kind of gave me a conceptualization of how you explain to the people that are in power that this situation is actually bad for them mm-hmm. like yeah that's a hard because- thing to do but necessary for sure yeah, we're not. They're never gonna buy. Like the the two options are, you know, killing them or getting them to buy into <laughs> to a representation of the world where where them losing wealth is a good thing for them, bringing right. them closer to fulfillment and happiness. Is like if you can't make that case, then your only other option is to kill it and take it. That those, those are your options. <laughs> like, I mean, I guess you can imprison them, but that's just, that's just building a revolution in your prisons. So right. like. Uh, and, and you, like you know, as uh, as Hamp says, you can jail a revolutionary, but you can't jail a revolution. And so, uh, as as many times as they try and kill these ideas, they try and, and bury them. They try to you know burn them uh, in books, in the literal cases. Like the the concepts, the ideas are in us, like deep, deep within us. And so, even even if we have to keep remaking them and keep re envisioning them. Uh, for each uh, individual circumstance, there it, it's it's more core to us than the propaganda, the capitalistic propaganda that they paint on top of it, and the colonization in our minds that invades our every thought. It it's deeper than that. So we if we if we find the right tools, we find the right methods, we can reach that. I believe in just about anybody obviously there's people with various circumstances genetic uh you know brain trauma and so on and so forth in which case there are certain limitations to what their brains are actually capable of uh but i think for the most of us uh most of the population they're deep deep within us is a core belief that we're entitled to a, a humanity and dignity and that others are too and if we can reach that even in the people that have made it their life's work to exploit those same people that we can find solutions where we where we can stave off as many deaths as possible in those uh upcoming (laughs) situations that like because i mean the situation as it lies i mean without significant scientific breakthroughs there's just no way to stop the at least a billion climate refugees uh you know a billion people without access to uh, potable water uh you know and uh, the energy crisis with people where, you know, simply China can't imitate our lifestyle and we can't, the world won't sustain it. It's just mm-hmm. not possible. So uh, there's got to have to be some sort of meeting of between where the a rural, how a rural Chinese person lives and how an affluent American lives. There's going to, we're going to have to meet somewhere in the middle or, or the world's going to solve the problem for us and get rid of us. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just have one more comment that I have to make about the yellow vest thing because I can't let it go. Um, <laughs> so not to totally derail the conversation again, but I think one of the other problems that I have is just that I, because I, I don't, again, I'm not trying to say that like this entire movement is, is white and middle class or upper class or whatever, because I don't think that's the case. But I would say for sure, in terms of the media representation of this protest that's going on in France in the United States, the way it's being framed is sort of like, these are disgruntled middle, like lower middle class and middle class white workers. And I don't know enough about 
the, the breakdown, the demographic breakdown, even the class breakdown of the movement, because I think what we're getting on the U.S. end is going to be distorted off, of, you know, on its face anyway, just because it's the U.S. mainstream media. Um, so I don't want to, I'm not trying to say that, like, I don't care about this movement because it's white. But what I do want to say <laughs> is that it, you know, it bothers me that, I, think, I guess what I'm trying to say is like the press representation of the movement bothers me more than the movement itself. So the movement itself is one thing, but I think the representation that we have of it in the West, or at least in the U.S. to be more specific, is one that excludes and sort of writes off a lot of these previous protests that have been happening for a minute now since Macron has come into office that all of a sudden they care about this one gives me pause. You know, that's, that's, that's I guess, the best way of putting what I mean. Um, because I think if it had been that, you know, every day on the news, we turned on the TV and we saw the French police raiding people's houses and breaking up families and like kidnapping people basically from their community, mm -hmm. it would be different. Like, I would be like, okay, this is awful. Like, we need to, you know, what is that noise? Oh my God. I'm so sorry, everyone. Like literally, so no matter, in Brazil, it's like, if you're in a major city, no matter what floor you're on, you're going to hear everything outside. You don't hear your neighbors necessarily, but you hear everything that's going on outside for some reason. Like, I don't know what the deal is. But anyway, I apologize for all the noise. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that's, that's where I am right now. I'm kind of, I, I'm frustrated that we have not seen nearly as much concern, and we know why. <laughs> we know very well why, um, of certain communities in France that have been going through it for a long, long time. And that have been completely ignored, or at least, you know, not not considered uh, a group that's worthy of, of of caring about. And I think they're kind of, as per in the United States, the canary in the coal mine, to be honest, because this is happening well in advance to them, um, and it was happening even before Macron came into office, right? Like austerity was hitting the poor migrant communities in France for a long time. You know, it's not new for them. And so I think it's frustrating for me that all of a sudden I'm supposed to slip flip my concern for a group that's been marginally and had some sort of power um, and, and a group that also sometimes engaged in and voted towards the further marginalization of these other groups that were being harassed early on and then ignored. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if I'm making sense, but no, it's just yeah. sort of frustrating. You know, what? like I, I think people have the right to protest and have the right to be angry at what's going on, but it just makes me wonder like, why was there less attention paid when it was happening already, like all the stuff that's happening to larger groups in France was happening to a smaller group that, that those same groups that are protesting now have been antagonizing for, for decades, you know. Well, I, I see the same parallel in a lot of uh, leftist movement. And I think one of the things that is so troublesome is that it, it definitely seems as though it, if uh, the concerns of this uh, this new, whiter, more middle class groups are are alleviated, then it'll go right back to how it was where right, the, right. the the black or brown or the uh, minorities are being uh, oppressed and the middle class somehow can't see what the big deal is. <laughs> right. And I mean, even there was a really good um, interview that I posted earlier today from a guy who's often on Democracy Now! And he was very careful to mention that even under uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who is the lefty leader um, who ran against Macron and Le Pen back in that election and lost, unfortunately. He was, you know, he was, people were kind of saying that he's like the Bernie Sanders of France. Um, I hate these kind of productive comparisons, but that's what they were calling him for lack of, 
you know, a better term, I guess. Us um, Westerners but... don't know anything about anything else in the world, so you have to make it as simple as possible for us. <laughs> right, like Bolsonaro is the Trump of Brazil, and Mélenchon <laughs> is the Bernie of France. So, yeah. yeah, but I think, you know, there was all this discussion about how he's this great lefty and blah, 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 but what people were ignoring about him, and then also there was a situation with uh, a guy in Russia named Navalny, who was also sort of, both, both of these men were sort of being fashioned as like, an alternative left candidate. And unfortunately they both had very bad sort of nativist policies uh, or not, not policies, but the, at least Navalny did for sure. Um, but Mélenchon expressed support of the, the burqa ban, like basically the, it's called shorthand, the burqa ban, but the ban on women wearing headscarves in public mm -hmm. uh, positions. So like you can't work for the state and wear a headscarf. And like, there were all these instances of, women, Muslim women who are more conservative being harassed for wearing head coverings or wearing burkinis and things like that. I don't know if you remember this, mm -hmm. uh, but he was in support of that stuff. And like those kinds of, <laughs> I mean, that kind of legislation meant everyday harassment for the same people that I'm talking about who lived in these outskirts of France or obviously within or outskirts of Paris, uh, but obviously within Paris too. And so it's just very frustrating. I think when we in, at least in the U.S., I think we fashion sometimes these foreign nominally left leaders uh, as as our saviors. But in fact, people don't reflect on how those leaders also engage with marginalized communities within their country. And when I say marginalized, I'm not just talking about economically, but I'm also talking about you know socially marginalized um, on the basis of race, religion, migration status, et cetera that matters and it has i think that's one of the problems that i have with what i'm starting to see at least on the online left in the u.s i don't know if it's reflective of anything greater than that because i've been out of the u.s for so long lately uh but i think that there is a real concern for me at least that some people are starting to um or if they haven't they've they haven't been expressive of it before but now are expressing it very loudly that they don't want to talk about those other people anymore. They don't want to talk about like the most marginalized. They just want to leave everything at the level of class. And I know some people refer to this as class reductionism, but I feel like it's worse than that. Like it's not just class reductionism, but it's also a type of um, antagonism, to be honest, towards people and communities that are marginalized on the basis of compound issues. So not just class, but also other social and identity-based elements that then limit their access to class equality, limit their access to economic equality. These things matter. Um, and so, yeah, I think in, and, and I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it's healthy for us to ignore um, when sometimes when candidates or, I don't know, journalists or whomever decide that they're going to throw the, the otherized group under the bus. That doesn't help in my opinion, it doesn't help us better uh, reach class or economic equality. That's not how it works, you know. And it's this idea that if everything's okay for most people, then it'll, it'll be okay for everyone. <laughs> it's like, it, I, I don't understand the logic of that. You know, like, I've never heard anything like this in my life being forwarded as an actual ideology that has had any success. The, what I've always heard and what I believe in is that you help the most, the absolutely most oppressed and most marginalized. And once those people are at a level where they are equal and where they are, they are, they have equality within a society, then you know what I'm saying? Like it's an inverse. Yeah. So a lot of people use this like rise, you know, like a rising tide raises all boats. 
But no, 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 that's not true. Like you gotta pull, you gotta pull out the boat that's sinking, that's all the way at the bottom first. You know, yeah. that's like the emergency. Rise, the rising emergency. tide doesn't help the guy in the boat with a hole in it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Like you gotta help that guy first. You know, you right. have to, you have to prioritize. If anything, you have to prioritize that as an emergency because he's already going to sink. He's already sinking, right? And if you don't want that guy to drown, you gotta help him first. Deal with the other boats later or do you come up with a method that will help all of them, but that prioritizes that guy, right? Because yeah. he's in the most dire situation. And I think that there, there has been some sort of, I don't know, I don't know where it's coming from, but it seems to me that some people believe that, and it's, it goes against all fact, it goes against all reality that has mm -hmm. been lived and experienced and written about and everything. Um, but for some reason, I think it's coming back into, it's coming into favor in a way that I find um, detrimental to leftist movements in countries that are made up of multiple groups. It's not just, you know, everybody's the same. And there's, there's, there are very few countries left like this, right? Yeah. Um, so it's not realistic and not, not right, period. <laughs> and I mean, that's what I hear when I see the Green New Deal. It's like, oh, okay, mm -hmm. I, I get it. Yes. And, you know, marketing and all that. It's like, but we remember what happened with the first new deal uh -huh. like who, who got left out of that one <laughs> like, and the like, thing is is it's not what's the plan different? itself it's not and it's not always the plan itself right because on paper yeah. all these plans are fine the issue mm -hmm. is the implementation of these plans and that's why we have to always have i think you know secondary levels to these plans that ensure in practice when they are applied that they're equally applied and that they are in, in and as i said you know as i've argued in the past some of these plans are going to have to have triage clauses that's what i like to call them triage clauses because they've got to help the people who are affected and in the most dire positions first um what that looks like may differ depending on the society but i think that there have to be there have to be um additional safety nets built in for instances where you know in practice like you can't look at me in the face today and tell me that in mississippi an application of a new deal is going to be fairly applied to people of color for example because you know that's not the truth so there has to be an extra layer to these kinds of plans um, that ensures that people aren't being left behind and further marginalized just on the basis of their being poor and black or poor and muslim or fill in the blank right mm -hmm. um in 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 parts of the country or hell the whole country uh that have clear issues with racism sexism um islamophobia fill in the blank that limits people from having economic inequality, economic equality i should say and that's why i think uh, uh one of the reasons why i think uh, the the dialectic aspect is so important is like if you're not communicating with those communities then you're mm -hmm. like you can look at every statistic you want, but you can't like definitively say that the situation is improving unless you're talking to the people and that's what they're that they're perceiving is like because it's right. their reality It's how, how you feel about what it's like in Africa isn't really as relevant as how somebody in Africa feels about living in Africa. Mm. <laughs> and so it, like it. The, we have what are you to... trying to say, Richard? No, <laughs> well, no, no, no. I mean, I think, well, I got, that was actually super, uh, that just uh, reminded me of, you know, that you, and you, you helped remind me that when I was, uh, we talked a little bit about some of this stuff uh, before we started recording and that like a lot of the things that concern me about uh, life in the United States are, is already a reality for a lot of people around the world.
right yeah and it's it's easy if if, i know if i can get distracted and and lose uh track of that that it's it's just as easier easier for somebody who's less aware of it as in a normal situation uh to lose track of what what does a green new deal mean for africa what does uh Mm -hmm. you know uh whatever policy we're going to implement what does that mean for humanity as a community of of this world and uh, i think it's too easy for us to be like well this is what that this is what that group needs they they don't know you know it's like they, they need democracy or you know these people need this and, and it is like and if we give it to them then then things are going to get better but that's just not how these things work you can't give those things to people they have to they have to want them and take them from for themselves and you people take uh independence liberty for themselves when they understand what it means when when they understand the contradiction between their life and what a free life would be and and what liberation actually looks like and that doesn't mean getting to do whatever you want whatever you want and, and you know to hell with the consequences it means uh together working towards becoming more complete as as a human being uh, both uh, on, on your own and then as a community and so we see how capitalism interferes with that at nearly every turn whether it be you know the the banking model of education whether it be the fascist model of the workplace or it be uh, you know any other you know the the similarly dict- dictatorial leadership of most uh, kids education it's we see these manifest in all different aspects of our life and recognizing it and then identifying it and then discussing with the people that are suffering from it is the only way that we're going to be able to reduce the suffering for all of us. If, if we're only looking at things through how it's going to affect us and the people that we immediately care about and we keep our circles of empathy uh, as, as small and close as possible, then, then we're just going to shift the suffering from one group to another. And that that's not what, any group wants we we want the suffering to stop and, and, and or to be reduced to be minimized to be mitigated to the best degree that we can and that that takes a, a unity and a commonality of goals and uh, understanding that capitalism and imperialism uh, act directly against because that type of engagement with uh, a social world threatens their existence I mean, I agree with all of that, except I do think that there are some groups that do intentionally want to continue to harm. And I think get off on harm. Yeah. And I think, you know, exist on a level that is purely masochistic or sadistic, excuse me, purely sadistic. Um, and I think a lot of them are in office right now, unfortunately, um, in, in political office. And yeah. I don't know if... I don't know. I am, and this is my year in review, right? My year in review was I spent six, like I spent half the year out of the country. Um, So I was looking at the country from another country. You know what I mean? Like I'm looking at the U.S. from, as I'm doing the U.S., right? Like looking at the U.S. through Twitter, basically. (laughs) Looking at the U.S. through the news. Um, So it wasn't that different from how I see the U.S. when I'm in the U.S., but I've always noted that like whenever I'm out of the U.S., the U.S. seems so much worse, and it, it you really start to recognize how like bonkers the U.S. is um, on so many different levels. And I think also just having so many interactions with people who 
are angry at the U.S., understandably, um, who sometimes took out their anger initially towards me, even though I'm like, I'm one of the oppressed people in the U.S., so, like, don't be mad at me. Like, I agree with you, you know. Um, it's still having having to confront um, in very real terms what the U.S. has done abroad and the effects of the damage um, in real time. And then also looking at what's happening in the U.S. We had so many, so many attack, white supremacist attacks this year in the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, like I, I'm sitting here writing about Brazil and talking about the fascism in Brazil growing and all this stuff. And I'm just like, oh, my God, like, what am I talking about? You know, Brazil is has has its work cut out for it. But look at the U.S. Like the U.S. has been under a state of siege for certain communities for forever, like since, since the beginning. You know, I don't think that we can say that indigenous communities or black communities have ever had a break. Right. I don't think there's ever been a moment in which yeah. the state was not doing something against uh, those communities and wasn't doing it. And, and even, you know, um, we can we can get into further detail, like smaller communities within those communities. Obviously, they're not monoliths. But I mean, in general, from inception in the United States, indigenous and Afro-descended peoples have been victims of the state. And I think that there it's it's hard for me um, it's hard for me to kind of like look at the U.S. and even see a space of optimism. And this is why I say like, I'm the one who's always yelling and like Richard is the one who like brings me down to kind of say, hey, it can be better. Like things can get better when you calm down, you know, but I, I, I am mostly so... just trying to convince myself, but go on. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's important. Like, I think we have to have, you know, an optimistic side, but I think just being outside of the U.S. and looking at the U.S. and looking at the state it's in. And I think this is also why I get more frustrated when I see leftists or self, you know, again, self-proclaimed leftists, because I don't think they're real leftists, but self-proclaimed leftists siding with these monsters and siding with these people who are killing people like me and you and saying, we got to listen to them and basically mimicking Trump's, they're good people on both sides, but like a left version of that, quote unquote, mm -hmm. left version of that. I mean, it's very, it's, it's an affront to reality, right? Um, and I think that that, for me to see the left in the U.S. that's never really, it's never really been like what it needed to be in the first place. But like we had a moment of hope, I think, in 2016. And in the aftermath, we started to see people really like popularizing socialism and all of that. But I see what I'm seeing right now is a regression. And I am really disappointed at, at basically what I see as kind of a squandering of what could have been a much more impactful moment of leftism in the U.S. I think some people were grifters and I think a lot of people just wanted to make money. And so they looked at the Bernie moment and they said, oh, I'm going to get famous from this. I'm going to, you know, start my magazine or my podcast or whatever the F and then use that, unfortunately, to turn into a weapon against the left. And I see a lot of this happening. Um, and that's concerning to me. And I'm, I know that there's a lot happening on the ground that is more hopeful. And I think that does give us um, some sense of the left actually being put into action and working. But I am hoping that going forward, that sense of motivation that's coming out of these groups on the ground continues and that they aren't hampered by the people that I see who are basically stress rights or who are, you know, like mm -hmm. siding with the right to a degree that's detrimental and dangerous for our movements 
and in particular dangerous for people who are already marginalized on the basis of their, I, the, not the basis of their identities, but the basis of a state and a society that oppresses people on the basis of their identities. I always have to be careful about that because it's not the identities that are causing the problem. It's the fucking racist and violent people and the state that are causing the problem. You know? right. um, not so, fall yeah. into this. Well, if you just ask the racist in a better way, then they wouldn't be so right. racist. <laughs> no. No, that's not how this works. It doesn't work like that, you know. And so I think that that's that that to me is, I mean, that to me is really mind blowing because we saw, for example, uh, a synagogue that was shot up. We saw, you know, the Charleston church that was shot up in 2015. So again, I, I'm one of those people who's like, this the shit didn't start with Trump. It's been ongoing like since inception. But I think just seeing all this violence, um, you know, Standing Rock, again ongoing for years, really, before people started to actually pay attention and then say something about it. And even then, it was like, there are good people on both sides. But like from the Democrats, they were saying that with Standing Rock, you know, mm -hmm. there are good people on both sides. And so it's just, it's, it's mind blowing to me that right now we have people who are reflecting and, and I guess, empathizing with the side of the oppressor very explicit and obvious oppressor and i don't know what to say to them other than i think that those people are harmful and that i don't know if they have some other motivation like if they're being paid to act like this if they have you know i think some of them might be um but you know and i see so much so much of this strange defeatism too that's coming from some pundits on the quote-unquote left who are saying you know don't fight white supremacists there's no point and there's no point for antifa oh, yeah. there's, and i'm just like are you kidding me so we're just supposed to sit here and get slaughtered like is that the ideal like you just want us to die is that we shouldn't fight them I and that's the same message that we hear from milk toast liberals so what is i guess my point is like what is the point of being a leftist if your entire philosophy and ideology is based in cowardice that's not what leftism is about Right. Right. And yeah. leftism it, is about confronting the, the violence that is enacted upon us and ending it through whatever means necessary, you know, whether yeah. the institutional, personal, you name it. But we have to we have to fight back. And I don't know what's going on, but I'm, I'm really kind of personally, I'm frustrated. And I hope that my frustration is alleviated uh, by these people disappearing into the ether and no longer having a platform. I don't know. I don't know what it's going to take, but I've seen a lot of this. And I'm not just talking about Twitter, I'm talking about people who have columns um, mm -hmm. and who are influential. And uh, we don't, uh, that to me is not, is, is not the way we need to go. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, like, I, it seems as though the, the, the grifter classes, you, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> articulate it now. <laughs> uh, but like, essentially, that is in uh like a lot of uh, a group of so-called leftists have essentially looked at neoliberalism and and they they're pulling you know uh, you know samuel is like what's the matter massa we sick you know <laughs> like, what, what what we got to do massa how we, how we got to fix this and they're look they're trying they're they're looking at their oppressor and and figuring out how do we rebuild this relationship in a way that you can still oppress me but that we're both in a more accepting uh, we're both more accepting of the situation mm -hmm. as opposed to we need to destroy this oppressive system period and a story like it, it's it, it the suffering like whether it's the suffering or it's the the unrealized potential or some combination of the two that motivates you 
it it's all unacceptable like the 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 lost the squandered potential of uh all those children and you know whether it be yemen africa and south america or wherever that that just that they have tons of potential they they could help be helping humanity move forward in both our understanding of ourselves and progressing towards a, a more peaceful and habitable world except instead they're walking three miles a day to get water and working as a 12 year old reshoeing old uh shoes from the united or re-soling uh, old shoes from some other country that get dumped there into a dump that they spend six hours a day you know going through so that they can find resources to build their you know radio thing because they like gadgets or what like that's what they're doing instead because we've mm -hmm. built a system that wants to exploit everyone even if there's the potential there so for people on the right i think it's easier for them to 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 get closer to recognizing the humanity of all people through understanding the all the lost potential and i think for a lot of people on the left it's easier to empathize with the suffering and recognize that that we have to do something to stop the suffering but really both of them are important and and we can't we're not going to move forward without recognizing how much we're all losing because of that mm -hmm. yeah uh, i mean it's yeah we're not we're i don't i don't think for example, that, well, maybe they do, never mind. I was gonna say, I don't know how much white middle-class people or even upper-class people have to gain from white supremacy, but who am I kidding? They have plenty to gain. Uh, <laughs> whether or not it's materially successful, I mean, even, even then, materially, they have a lot to gain because if you keep people who are different from you from joining the workforce, if you keep them from feeling safe in public places and thus being consumers right like if you're looking at it from a right-wing perspective um I, I don't know but i i i yeah i wish that more people understood how this oppression towards groups that are more vulnerable for example than even i am if i look and i say okay someone who's more who's poorer than me or who doesn't have xyz resource or whatever who doesn't have access to healthcare, etc they're in a much more they're in a dire situation um but i for example don't understand someone who's like in my position who can then look at them and say their suffering helps me somehow their their suffering is like what i need to get what i want and i it's a mentality that i don't understand but mm -hmm. i know that some people have it <laughs> you know what i mean like and i think even if they don't individually have it they support states that enact that kind of policy that basically reflects that kind of mentality because there's this idea that, I mean, even when we hear things about, um, you know, the military, like they're fighting for our freedoms. So, okay, so you're destroying other countries, if not entire continents, for what freedoms exactly? Like, I haven't seen any new amendments added to the constitution. I haven't seen, you know what I mean? Like, I haven't seen anything that's like a direct, a direct effect from this violence and harm and clear destruction that's going on. This one-to-one -one relationship doesn't exist. But I think that some people really believe in that. And so they continue to support it because they believe that for us to have rights, we have to engage in destruction and suffering of others, of other communities, of other groups, of other countries. And I think that also is, is in play in the United States with between some people. You know, I really do think that they think that, okay, if we have if we imprison more people from this XYZ community, then we'll be safer. I mean, 
or if we keep these people from having access to healthcare, then my personal healthcare will be better because there will be more resources for me. I think people think like that. The question is, how do we reach those people? Um, and how do we, and, and I think it's that this is, this is what's hard to break down. Like if you don't see yourself, if you don't see other people as equals or as potential equals, right? And when I say potential equals, I mean in the sense that like at one point they should have the, the economic equality to be your equal, right? Like we should, mm -hmm. it's, but it, I think some people believe that this process involves their losing something in order for the other person to gain basic ass equality. Like I think they, and I've heard this before, like I was during the 2016 election, someone who would remain unnamed said to me, she didn't want to eat cat food uh, for, for other people to have healthcare. Because for her, you know, other people having universal healthcare meant that she would have to suffer somehow and that she was going to have to pay so much in taxes that even though she was making $100,000 a year, that she would have to pay so much in taxes that she would be eating cat food. And she's saying this to me, who's making like $25,000 a year as a fucking grad student. You know, I'm like, mm -hmm. are you kidding me? Like you're worried about eating cat food so that a poor person can have basic health care and won't die. And you're talking about that. Like, are you kidding me? But yeah, oh. this is, I think people think like that. And I don't know how to, I don't know how to make those people realize that like their continued oppression of other people also affects them. It's very difficult to connect those dots for some people. You know? Well, one place uh, that I can see how that kind of played out a little bit in, that we can look back on now uh, is in sports, mm -hmm. where essentially uh, you had white mediocrity celebrated in sport uh, <laughs> through segregation. I mean, you know, essentially uh, you had mediocre white people being celebrated as the best in the world because they excluded the rest of the world that would beat them. And so... Uh, like when in the 60s and through the 70s into the 80s and it even happens it, like i can't remember the exact comment that comes to mind but uh there was some coach that recently said something to the same effect but basically people the athletes were looking around you know you would get a, a like a really high quality athlete somebody that was at the peak of, the, of their ability and then they would look around at their team and they would be surrounded by mediocre people and they were like, what is this? Why, why, why am I surrounded by this mediocrity? And, and they started to realize, oh, it's because... Oh. <laughs> Speaking of sports. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, they, start, they realized, it's like, oh, it's because we're excluding the people that are better than them based off of how they look. And like, it's like, so we saw in sport uh, that, you know, I did admit, Rami, in sport... <laughs> <laughs> no, but in sports we saw that uh we saw that you know especially coaches you know they they're like they were looking around going around the country like looking for the most talented players to bring into the onto their team and they'd be like oh man this guy's really talented and then they'd see the color of his skin and be like well damn too bad i can't have him on my team like i'm gonna have to draft this mediocre white guy instead <laughs> and so like i think that's one way people see it is like when you think about the incompetence that you see at work and the the you know the your your bosses and the boss's boss who doesn't really seem to understand anything that's going on but just seems to be in charge of everything for some reason it's like mm -hmm. that's a result of this this oppressive celebration of white mediocrity like that's uh, or like and of of class mediocrity warfare. period i don't even yeah, think it's yeah. about white mediocrity it's just about mediocrity period it is I now i mean it's become more diverse now 
Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's and that's and that's what the liberalism has has pushed us towards is a, yeah. a shallow. Uh, well, if we put black faces on it, it'll be better. It's like, no, <laughs> that that like right. it's you, so you can bad, paint but... it. You can paint it any color you want. It's going to be the same thing. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. You were saying that you were talking oh. about how sport is maybe the great. No, I mean, that, that, well, not, not so much as a great equalizer. It's just, it's it one makes place. makes people realize that. It's one place where I've seen people. So, like, I, I feel like when, if people look around, if you can identify, it's like, well, how, how did this happen? If you, so you realize, oh, the boss is the boss because he's the son of the boss. It's like, well, didn't we get rid of, you know, princes and stuff? Because we realized that's a really stupid way to pass down power. Like, <laughs> So why are we doing that in our corporations? That doesn't make much sense. And, and if you get people to identify those, uh, uh, the, that discordance and those contradictions, ones that they've already made that aren't necessarily associated with left or right politics, but just recognized with uh, as things that we've realized as as humans is like, oh, well, that's a bad thing to do. And, and that is more ubiquitous and less uh, less political. I think that's generally where we could go. One of the other things that looking over some of the podcasts, uh, I'm reminded of, uh, it was, I believe it was episode 10. Uh, you, you spoke with uh, uh, Beatrice uh, mm -hmm. about student movements in the 60s in Ethiopia. And so that's, I feel like students and, and the younger generation is, uh, has a lot to do with how we can get out of this. Is perhaps we are too jaded. You know, perhaps we've experienced too much and we've seen too many failures and we've seen too many co-options and too many, uh, you know, uh, corruptions and, and we've seen too much and we're jaded. And so, uh, like, uh, just as we can't imagine, you know, the fanciful uh, things that sometimes a child will tell you is right in front of them, perhaps that's what we need is the the imagination and the 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 that uh, I mean, the imagination, and I, I want to say the words that come to mind are disconnect from reality, but I don't mean it in a pejorative way, but just in mm -hmm. that they don't, reality isn't made for them yet. Like they're still. But it is belief. though. It is though. No, <laughs> because if you think about it, like, okay, look at millennials right now. They're like suffering under massive debt. I mean, I'm technically a, like, I'm an old millennial, but like, and you are too. But I mean, mm. I don't know because I feel like they're they're very in touch with reality, like right now, and it's all economic reality, and that's why a lot of them went for Bernie Sanders because, and also why so many of them are attracted to socialism because it's like their material reality is fucked up, and I think that they're like looking for outs. The problem though is that there's also a number of people uh, who are younger than us who are joining right wing white supremacist groups and like listening to Dave Rubin and being influenced by that wing as well. So I hate to, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just, I don't oh. want to fetishize youth because I think that sometimes youth can also get shit wrong and like, Oh no, <laughs> absolutely. You know what I mean? So like we have to be well, careful too, not I, to like, yeah. No, I can tell I'm not uh, articulating myself uh, properly. What I mean to say is that like, they haven't accepted the world as it is yet. Like they still think that it can change and they mm -hmm. think it, they can imagine a very different world than, than I think a lot of older, uh, uh, those of us that are more older or that are older or more jaded can mm -hmm. imagine, you know, it's hard for us to imagine a world of equity and of, of, you know, true, you know, freedoms and liberty and stuff. It, it's hard to imagine like 
how the world could change in such a way that we could see that in our lifetime because mm -hmm. of the experiences that we've had. But and uh, and perhaps even millennials are too old at this point in general, uh, <laughs> having <laughs> having the experiences that they have. Uh, but the 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 people what I'm thinking of is I'm thinking of like a, a 13 year old right now, mm. like the what the world is to them, like they're still learning what it is. And like they they're constantly confronting these things of, well, we're telling them this is the world. And they're like, but that doesn't make any sense. Why would we have a world like that? We should mm -hmm. totally organize it like this. And it's like so while that, that malleability can be fomented in and moved towards the right, like as you mentioned, and that they can be, yeah. you know, emboldened by and, and I think neoliberalism has done that, you know, the way that uh, race has been uh, separated from the class argument and, and mm -hmm. by neoliberals to focus on identity politics and that type of identity does encourage, you know, the 13 year old that just wants to make a 13 year old joke. And then gets this response from this neoliberal uh, like part of society, and like they don't understand what's going on, and and rather than really engage with that, they're thirteen year olds, so they just run to the right. That's what they do, mm -hmm. <laughs> and they go to they find a group of friends where they can make those jokes, and everybody laughs, and they can be accepted, and they can find a pocket in society that embraces them rather than shuns them or uh, you know whatever. And it's like that's not to say that we need to coddle. Uh, you yeah, know, I was say, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's not that, that, that's not that's not my point. My point is just that uh, that that we need to we need to capture their attention and make yeah. our case in such a way that like that we are that we need we need to capture their attention and we need to make our case. That doesn't mean we need to coddle to them and and make them feel good and and and, and like accepting and being accepting of their homophobia or their toxic masculinity. Which I think when I'm starting to come to the realization, it's just any masculinity is toxic. And we need to get them before they make the joke, though. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Like that's that, yeah, exactly. Like yeah, yeah. we need to get to them at the point where they're like not even thinking about jokes like that, and they're thinking like we need to be able to say, you know, you should see your fellow person as an equal to you, and this and, is why things like this might hurt them. And if you want to live in a society where you all are equal, then recognizing that pain and how you can also inflict pain upon people, but like pain that also later will functionally like limit their access to equality in multiple ways. That's where we need to get them somewhere before they make the joke. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, I agree. I guess part of it is uh, holding out optimism for myself because I mean, I, <laughs> I, I was a terrible person when I was younger. I mean, I had a lot yeah. of, I, I think I was, a, I was a good person, good natured in a lot of different ways, but capitalism, colonialism, being black in America, these things can make you a very angry person. <laughs> like, and, I'm still and, figuring it out, obviously, because I'm the angry one of the two of us. So <laughs> like, I'm somewhere on the... <laughs> well, like, I mean, I was I was young and dumb, so my I manifested my anger towards people that didn't deserve it. And, mm -hmm. like, that came out in the ways that, you know, our society, uh, you know, emboldened and encouraged and, you know, and was acceptable and would and would net me positive social attention. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's like, and so like, I, I, I don't want to give up or lose, or uh, I, like, I don't, I, I know I, I, I believe, you know, I can be a revolutionary. I can be uh, the, the type of person I want to be. And if I wasn't, the, if I was that horrible person, then, then I have to believe that the, that these people aren't lost, that we're not, that, that we're not lost, that, that we're, there's mm -hmm. salvageable, but then also 
you know, everything else, my pessimism, my uh, determinism, my all, all the other things about my cynicism, my jadedness of being where I am and life and experience leads me to the conclusion that at least if all those people are gone, if we are if we are hopeless, the 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 moldability of like you said the children before they make that joke like when they're still correcting their parents when they hear their parents say something that just sounds harmful to another human being and they're like don't we like other humans why are we why are we being mean to other humans i don't understand is like instead of letting colonialism and capitalism reinforce the notions of well it's either you or them so which one do you want it to be like <laughs> If we can get them before that and, and understand that it's all of us or none of us and and that, you know, that means that that doesn't mean that we're all going to make it or that none of us are going to be harmed. But that if we take that approach, that we're all going to be better off than we're if we're all just in it for ourselves. And capitalism has for generations bred into people that this belief that we are like that human beings innately and unavoidably will harm each other to help themselves and perhaps maybe at, at some primal level that, that there's some truth to that but we have frontal lobes and we're capable right. of of quite a bit and just like we don't accept the idea that you know oh we're just going to club people over the head and, and bring them back to our caves and and do whatever we want with them we're going to set up a society that makes rules against those even if they're not always effective uh, I don't even want to get into domestic abuse with police, but anyway, uh, <laughs> but like we, we're like we can change how how we view these things and how we uh, deem how we treat them in society, and whether there's something that we accept and ignore, or whether it's something that we attempt to mitigate and and reduce. And so that's capitalism and the competitive the the. Uh, zero sum aspects of uh, capitalism is one of those things and and I think socialism leads us there and so when I see uh, the the movements uh, I, I'm happy when I see the when I see the younger people asking questions of authority figures that uh, other people that their peers may sometimes be too cautious to ask because they're imagining a better world than even the the liberators or the the uh, us revolutionaries can imagine these these kids some of them the older generation of them at least yeah 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 some of them are imagining some some great things and there's potential there and so like when we when we talk about like well what what is the hope what can we do uh so like i i can understand resigning to a bit of hopelessness as an individual but there is the the world remakes itself with each generation, you know, and over generations, it, it, it's we we keep so much and we, we hold on to so much, but the potential for remaking is there. Uh, we just have to embrace it and and not not let uh, the next generation of kids think that this is the world that they have to live in. That they that there is no hope to stave off those solution those problems because there are, you know, like mm -hmm. the the issue with the, you know climate or with uh, uh, the water or with anything else is that the people that are here just aren't willing to make the sacrifices or make the changes that they need to make in order to actually put us on a sustainable path. They're just not, they're like, it's not going to be my problem. I'll be dead before it hits, before it hits the fan. So I'm just not going to do it. That's our actual problem. It's not that we, that it's impossible for us to resolve these situations or to at least mitigate them significantly. It's that 
the people here are making a conscious choice or and we're making a reality in which that's the future that we're leaving to those generations and like i mean, i have a personal guilt and all that stuff but i don't think that should motivate mo other people to think uh, but the reality is is that uh, the, our future rests in whether people are willing to plant trees that they'll never see the shade of and mm -hmm. like that is if, if we can at least trick the people that are just being born and just growing and you know the under 10 year olds <laughs> if we if we can convince them that we actually believe that like you know like many of us were convinced when we were little that people actually yeah. believed the american dream and all that if we can convince them that that's that's the world that they need to be in and, and give them the tools to to make that a reality there's hope I think, okay, so yes, um, <laughs> just like a gen that's a generic yes, like I agree with that. But I think that there's, again, I am, I am influenced by my experiences too. And like you talked a lot about guilt, but in my case, it's like seeing shit that young people do that scares the daylights out of me. So, yeah. um, and, and even with sort of interventions, um, by adults who are conscious, for example, and they're still looking the other way and saying no. I think that because, you know, there's also a youthful sense of rebellion, right? Like there's a mm -hmm. sense that they know everything and that, so I think there's that concern too. And like, I'm thinking about Brazil again, where the majority of people ages 16 to 24 voted for Bolsonaro. Mm -hmm. uh, Cause you can vote at 16 here. And so, and and they're called their their generation is often discussed much like how we discuss millennials in the U.S. in the sense that they're like having major issues with unemployment. They're not being they're, they, you know they're they're ending up in debt. Like they're starting to have college debt here because a lot of students um, aren't able to get into public schools, which like public public universities here are free, um, but much harder to get into. And then private universities are. There are also there's there's some private universities that are very prestigious and like you know have great academic backgrounds and things like that, but they cost money and so people have started to take out loans uh, more frequently and those prices are going up. And then there's also the issue of very rapacious sort of um, for-profit universities, just like we have in the U.S., who are expanding here and taking advantage of people, especially poor people. Um, and also what I what is a stat here that's shocking, but once you understand the political system and some Brazilian history, it makes sense. But the fact that people who were the more educated people were, the more likely they were to vote for Bolsonaro. So it <laughs> it basically like uh, I mean, and again, it goes back to like what kind of edu education are you getting, right? Mm -hmm. um, are you just learning for the test, which is super common here or are you just are you learning for learning's sake are you actually thinking are you being pushed to consider ideas that go beyond your understanding of the world um there's less of that even in public universities and things there, there's still very much a very conservative way of teaching and of learning um and the message that's being sent to young people is not necessarily one of like leftist revolutionaries you know i, I can say that with confidence um, it's a very conservative message, and it's one about making money and surviving, which makes sense considering Brazil's um, levels of poverty and things like that. But still, the people who are filling universities and the people who are professors remain predominantly white, predominantly wealthy, um, and predominantly conservative. And so, again, that that set of ideas is replicated. And whenever people sort of protest and go against the system, like recently, you know, they had the implementation of affirmative action in Brazil and you started to see 
more people of color, particularly of Afro descent or, or of African descent or of indigenous descent going to college and being the first people in their families uh, to attend college. At the same time, you have a president coming in now who plans to undo all of that. And so these, this sense of progress keeps going back and forth. It's not one that's like a continuous line. Again, as we see in, in any case of progress, right? And so that's why I think from my perspective, I'm always really cautious when we start talking about even, you know, young people having being able to reach them at a certain age or try to reach them at a certain stage in their education or whatever. Um, and I and I and I don't want to be too negative because again, I've been in a position where I've had to discuss things with Trump supporting students and ended up changing their minds just by their being in my class and the way I talked about you know, issues of oppression and stuff, which I, I'm not one of those people who's just like throw away anyone who, who's young <laughs> and supports Trump. Like there are some people who are hardened Trump supporters and they can go F themselves. But other people who are like clearly under the influence of their parents or clearly under the influence of, of you know, like just bad messaging, like bad YouTube people and stuff, you know, I think this type of person can be reached. There are some people that I personally don't want to deal with reaching, but I don't want to give, I, I, like, that's just a matter of safety for me, right? Like, I'm not yeah. going to reach a clan member, but maybe a white person can, you know? Right, um, exactly. But, but I think that there's, um, th that we have to be careful about, uh, again, I, I don't like, I mean, I don't think that you are personally fetishizing the youth, but I'm saying in general, something that happens a lot is this idea, you hear this all the time, that like, oh, once the old Republicans die or the old white racists die, things will be better. And it's like, yeah, maybe, but those people have kids and those kids listened to them and grew up under those racist old people and like, whatever, you know what I'm saying? So it's not like there's a disconnect between the generation that's in power now and inflicting all sorts of violence and austerity and fill in the blank upon the population and the youth that comes after them, the youth that they gave birth to, because ultimately they're in the same household. And like, I can't walk into someone's house and be like, hey, your dad's a racist son of a bitch. <laughs> like, <laughs> let me yeah. help you, you know? It's not gonna happen. And so I think that we have to just be, we have to be ready, I guess, at a moment's notice to kind of work with young people and, and help them really understand that people like Dave Rubin and whatnot are not the answer. Um, people like, I don't know, like Milo and whomever else, like. Angela Nagel at this point are not the answer. I mean, I think that that, and I hate to say that, but it's true. Like we talked about mm -hmm. her a little bit already, but the issue is like, I'm just going to name names. That is not the answer for the society that is going to make everyone equal. It's just not, the, it's, it's not going to work, you know? And I think we have to be ready and find ways to communicate with people beyond, beyond this podcast, beyond the classroom, beyond Twitter, what does our engagement look like? Because I think your point about what I do value very much about your point is that like they can be reached at that age. They are so malleable. Their ideas are not so set in stone and formed that there's no way to intervene and say, you know, offer an alternative. Um, it just is a matter of like, what does that look like? And how do we expand? How do we take our message that we have in this small space among people who think like us to then go beyond that and like, where do we go beyond that? And where do we have an impact? And I don't know if, I don't know where that is. I mean, I do and I don't, you know what I mean? Like, cause not everyone's mm -hmm. gonna end up at college. So then they're not gonna be in my classroom, right? Mm -hmm. And not everyone is gonna go to a youth center and be, you know, like not everyone is going to 
have the opportunity to engage with people who maybe are left-leaning or who have philosophies and ideologies that are similar to ours that are that are more liberatory you know what I mean Mm -hmm. not everyone that they encounter is going to be like that and I was thinking today too just of like I read all these articles that are so so conservative and who are they written by they're written by people in academia they're written by quote-unquote historians I, I joke because like their understanding of history is completely flawed but they're written by poli sci professors they're written by philosophy professors they're written by historians they're written by these people who claim to have the answers, but who are, and who are, what scares me is that they're still teaching, right? Yeah. They're still teaching. And yeah. so they're affecting how people think at this age when they are learning so many things for the first time. And they're going to be coming to that with, and receiving a, con- a highly conservative message. And sometimes one that's completely historically inaccurate. So what do we do then? Like, I can't compete with like, a load of professors in the economics department at the University of Chicago, right? Meanwhile, they're being convinced that those professors that are telling them these conservative ideas are actually Marxists. So the real truth lies somewhere to the right of whatever they're teaching you. Right. (laughs) Yeah, because all colleges are are like hotbeds of Marxism, right? Like, Right. (laughs) I went to one of the... Went to one of the most liberal universities in the country, at least the one in my state, and, and it was like it, it there was essentially we had to have a, a special office dedicated for the people of color uh on the campus because we just couldn't put up with the rest of the campus it was that bad mm-hmm. like, this, is, this is one of the most liberal places in in the state and so in washington state so it's uh it's yeah it i think what i perhaps some of my framing and my uh my intonation or my tone uh, conveys the wrong impression and even like my thinking at the moment. Uh, and no, it's not you. Yeah. Let me just clarify. I'm not just talking to you, right? Like, yeah, no, I'm yeah. Thinking, I know what you mean I'm about the fetishization. Beyond of... what you're saying. Like, I, I, I think what you're saying is fair and I think can be done, but it's a matter of like, how do we do that? But then also like, there is a side that go going beyond what you're saying, because I think what you're saying mm-hmm. is legitimate, but I'm talking about like the larger pop cultural framing of this idea mm-hmm. of like youth. Right? Yeah. Youth I mean, the, one comes to my mind is, uh, you know, like the gun, the David hog and, and like that. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I have like, you saw him. Well, that's one. I think it was a very interesting reflection of this whole idea of, you know, you've seen him, uh, I, I believe he's like uh, his dad is was part of the FBI or uh, one of the alphabet agencies or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, like you see him in real time digesting this stuff, you know, like he was just a kid at school living a rather privileged life. And then that privilege had a huge shock come to it in the, in the event that he witnessed. And then he was like, oh, well, you know, I guess uh, this is an opportunity for me to be politically active and gets politically active. is like, I'm gonna start thinking about some of these issues and, you know, I'm gonna, and you could tell it wasn't long before there was some, you know, uh, mainstream democratic people talking into his ear, giving him ideas about what positions were the right positions. And and you see him then engage with people on Twitter and, and, you know, put the idea out there and and then see a big backlash on a particular issue and be like, Oh, huh. And, and dealing with is like, and so it's like, that's that, that energy in those in that youth is what has to be captured and, and we have to make a case mm-hmm. we have to win we have to win <laughs> like like we have to win those arguments and i i believe and from my experience and from my reading 
that socialism will win. Like if you expl- if if like the colonization of people's minds and the the competitive nature of capitalism, so all those types of things are going to be invasive the, the older somebody is. But uh, I, I, if if somebody's willing to engage with you and really willing to engage with the ideas and isn't completely just shutting out anything that disagrees with the their established reality, then then I, I think socialism wins on the merits of the argument. Like, and so because good lord, if it doesn't, we are so we're already screwed. But like, I, I like what we have right now, and I know everyone always says this, but it's not sustainable. Like. We, I, I can't imagine it getting more extreme than this. And the reality is it very well could. And like, I, I can't wrap my head around it because I mean, I've seen it, I've seen it getting, I've seen it in the worst state, right? Like I've been to places where it's in what I would consider already an apocalyptic state, right? (laughs) right. But, uh, I can't imagine it. I can't imagine that being my everyday, right? And I don't know. Well, there's something something about commercialism and capitalism that like we could just like the world could be burning around us and as long as we have a show to binge watch we'll be okay yeah <laughs> or like if I, can buy, if I can buy like my face cream that i like or whatever like if i have access to goods and some goods then i'm comfortable but yeah. it's when yeah but I, I i mean i don't know i i <laughs> We have enough going on in our own in the U.S. that gives us a hint of what's to come, and mm-hmm. there are enough things going on in other countries where that's the everyday reality. That's already it's not what it's not a hint of what's to come, but it is what has come. Um, so I don't know. Ooh, I, I I am very frightened of the prospect of things what's weird for me and locally getting worse. What's weird for me is I don't have children personally, like, and so. Mm-hmm. Uh, as of now, like I haven't ruled out the idea of having children, but like as of now, you know, it, it's it's my lifetime, and from the a selfish, uh, cynic perspective, it's like I can make it. You know, I can find mm-hmm. some remote place uh, where and and fall off the grid and find and and likely avoid nuclear fallout or whatever ends up transpiring when the resources start to fall or get short, like. And probably live most of a life that is relative in, in relative, you know, peace and, uh, you know, harmony or whatever, you know, if, if, if that's what I, but like, I'm here fighting because I, I like for something greater than myself or any, or like, or my, even my own personal progeny, but it, it, it's bewildering to me when people do have kids, like, you know, whether it's like the Koch brothers or like, uh, Donald Trump and it's like, you, they you have to understand what you're leaving for them like you're just like uh you know the world's gonna basically collapse around you good luck with that <laughs> like, right, right. It, like don't you feel an obligation it's like i feel an obligation just to to my fellow humans it's like those are humans that are, are pro- your progeny <laughs> like how do you not feel that obligation towards not just them but the people around them that generation and it's just they're like oh well you know we we've got our nice family bunker set up and We've got to deal with Amazon that, you know, the first skyscraper <laughs> that they built, like, it was like, what? Like, I, I it just, it's bewildering to me. And so like, it's it, for those of us that aren't going to be in that, which is most of us, like, if you're not going to be in that club, like, got to fight. We got to fight yeah. and we got to win. Like, it, it's, every, it, it just, it's, I, I, it's hard for me to imagine a more meaningful motive motivation than you know the the perpetuation of 
of anything good in humanity. Like, is, and I we mean, have to be able to get to break down the distractions. I think right? is, I think that's that's the one of the biggest impediments I think for organizing uh, in the United States because I think one of, I remember back in the day like when I was younger I would say in elementary high school you know one of the true quote unquote truisms I always heard was you know when people are truly oppressed they they can't fight right so it's mm -hmm. it's when the people the people who are all the way on the bottom don't have the resources to really mount a fight it's the people who are somewhere in the middle or whatever but I was just like that doesn't seem right because like slaves rioted and like fought back and like killed their masters and stuff and like you know people who are very much at the bottom throughout the world have always rebelled and like found a way to fight for their freedoms i think in fact that what we see is the contrary like the opposite of that i think it's people at a, at a stage where they are comfortable where they're they have some sense of comfort left where it's very hard for them to mount a fight and i think what we see is in the united states because we live in the center of we live in the metropole, basically. You know, if you're going to use colonial language, we live in the metropole. We live in the center of, of capitalism, you know? And mm -hmm. we have, as I've always said to people, the best thing about the United States is you can get whatever you want whenever you want. If I want ice cream at 3 a.m., I can order it on Amazon, and some worker in a factory will package it and bring it to my house. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is, mm -hmm. this is our we we have whatever we want whenever we want if we have the money to pay for it we can get it and i think until we have a full breakdown of that comfort we have a moment where let's say amazon stops working can you imagine a day without amazon <laughs> people would like freak out this is what this this is what needs to be disrupted to then i think make people get into the habit of fighting and really really fighting like like mobilizing and doing something different than just and i think sadly you know, I would argue that while on the one hand, social media is in many ways empowering and I think allows people to circulate ideas that they wouldn't otherwise have been exposed to. At the same time, I think it's part of that comfort model because I think what it ends up doing is it makes our activism an act of consuming and, and like a sort of production in, in like, like as if it were a consumer good, right? So yeah. we think about something, we write about it, we tweet it, we put it on Facebook, whatever, and it's like this packaged, nice little thing that other people then consume, and then they feel good about and consume that idea, right? But then mm -hmm. there's no action after that. It's like a self-gratifying moment, and beyond that, there's very little action. And so what we have to be able to do, I think, is, is we have to be able to either create discomfort or have a moment where somehow we have discomfort, like real discomfort for us to actually start as a country doing things to implement socialism. Because until then we're too comfortable. It's not gonna happen. Like I, I and yeah, it's not gonna happen. And I think even the people, and I'm when I'm talking about comfort, I don't just mean like literal material comfort, like I can order something on Amazon, but I think even the prospect of material comfort is hampering us. So people who are poor, who are told every day, you can be rich. One day you're going to be rich. One day you're going to be fine. This mentality that like, you know, this idea of like, we're all temporary millionaire or like, we're, we're not millionaires yet. We're just like on our way mm -hmm. or like millionaires on a bad day. I think if they, people say, you know, oh, this yeah. is also... <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> oh, I, was, I had it in my head as uh, something. Yeah. But yeah, no, I just, like... it's not 
something like that, right? Like everyone's a millionaire, but some of us aren't like are having a bad. Day oh, temporarily, temporarily embarrassed uh, billionaires or millionaires. <laughs> something like that, yeah. Like temp, something like that. I can't remember the exact phrasing, but everyone listening to this will probably write in and be like, "How can you guys not know this? This is this is the first. <laughs> um, again, like a pop recent quiz, you know. Future. You got to be patient with me, okay? Recent future. Um, I'm working with <laughs> weird English right now, um, but yeah, I think that there is a real. Um, it's like a lack of discomfort and mm-hmm. once we have real discomfort on a more universal level and i think in a way that like where we don't just feel like we're we're a, a millionaire down on his or her luck but we, feel, we really feel like okay no this is poverty this is suffering this is loss this is not having xyz resources then it may be too late by then but yeah. i think that's the, that's the point where you start to fight and we have not in most in most cases in the US, not all, because we've definitely seen responses again, like Ferguson, like Baltimore, like you know what I'm like Standing Rock. These are moments mm-hmm. where people felt that and they reacted accordingly. People dismissed it, but that was that's what that was. These were glimmers, these were moments of what could be and should be the entire nation standing up. And we're not gonna have that until we all hit. I mean, we'd have to collectively hit rock bottom, I think, which is unfortunate, but maybe the case to really yeah. get people to get off their ass. And I guess for those the people that like are still engaged in electoral politics at the national level, uh, my perspective, and as pessimistic as it may be, is like that the two sides are essentially arguing about, uh, like the the left is arguing that how to preserve or avoid that level of discomfort. Mm-hmm. for u.s citizens period like, right. like and that that's right. where that ends and the and the right is essentially saying uh no we can push them a little bit further yeah we can push right. them a little bit further like, and the left's like no 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 this is far enough and like that's the argument and so and you see it manifest in essentially every policy argument republicans want to make things worse and democrats are like vote for us we'll, we'll make it we'll prevent it from getting that much worse and, and that's the entirety of the argument it's, it's not we're going to help bring you closer to liberation and freedom Right. It's almost like saying, like, we've got this sponge to help stop the dam. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, 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 instead of building a dam, we're going to just put some sponges in the water and hope for the best. Like, that's the Democrats right now. They're going to put some sponges down in front of, like, a river that's about to overflow. And the Republicans are, like, on the backside of the water just pushing it over the edge. Like, they're, they're the ones who are really accelerating the violence and the austerity. But the Democrats are... Yeah, it's we, the stopgap measure that's not a stopgap measure. <laughs> yeah, and we have a, a section of the population that's like that that's arguing tooth and nail, uh, like, well, you can't tell me that those sponges aren't preventing water from going downstream. Is that true or is that not true? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, yes, in, in the most technical sense, they are preventing some water from going past where we want it. But this right. is not this is not a solution. This is not even. This is not even a temporary stop. This is an aesthetic, something that gives people the the feeling like they're doing something. Right, it's the comfort. It's the comfort. Yeah. It absolutely is that. Oh, it's terrifying. It's like, you know, I think if like some hackers got together and took Amazon offline for a week, would people be mad at a a system that's allowed Amazon to be so, extend their tentacles into so far in their lives that they feel like they can't live without them? Or would they be mad at the hackers for upsetting their (laughs) 
ability to get their you know amazon prime thing thing delivered before you know the next day like is right. the, which one are the like and that's why what's that's why education and and when i say education i don't mean you know you need to tell the masses what they need to know it's like no you need to engage with the masses and help them recognize like and, and recognize together as a discovering process together how their issues are uh, caused to caused by or related to the larger problems that we see in the systemic issues that we see with capitalism imperialism and so forth like that that is crucial it's critical it's, it, it's the most important work for anybody that uh, i think is bothering to even read or engage in this theory stuff if you if you want to put any of it to practice the most important thing i uh, is engaging with people and I think you mentioned, you know, it's like, you know, people aren't going to end up on the campuses, aren't going to necessarily go to the youth centers. So it it, it becomes uh, a responsibility of those of us that are listening and, and following or in line with these types of thoughts that we've been covering to to interact wherever, you know, it's like uh, mm -hmm. uh, you'd be surprised. Like when somebody asks you a question, you're like, oh, how's your day going or what have you been up to? oftentimes we just give them a platitude it's like you know that's a great opportunity to actually just say something like, we should just say full socialism now <laughs> i mean you I'm know and, terrible <laughs> it's like i mean and sometimes the it's, shit out of them <laughs> it's like sometimes it may be a bit blurty or it may be a bit, but like it can be like somebody asked me what i was doing and instead of you know just saying some mundane thing i was like you know what I'm reading pedagogy of the press. It wasn't, it, it, mm. it was, it was somebody that I would have assumed would have had absolutely no interest in that conversation, but I just said it anyway, because that's what I was doing. And I, I wanted to stand in my truth in that moment. And it's something I've been working on as a personal growth thing anyway. So right. like, don't give, don't tell people what they want to hear. Just tell them, tell them what, what it is. <laughs> like, and so, <laughs> and they, they eventually like, I, they seem to take an interest, was able to discuss it a little bit. And I have no idea whether they're actually going to follow up and read it or they were just being polite or what, but it felt like I had done something and it was just one person in one instance in one instance. And I don't even know if they followed through, but it's, it, it's engagements like that, that have the potential to unlock the, the, the energy and the, the ideas that we're going to need in order to stave off uh, the worst uh, possible outcomes. And so that, I, I, I that's one thing I've learned is that uh, uh, this this podcast is a great tool as well. And uh, Twitter can be a great, good tool in some cases and uh, other social media and and uh, other uh, broadcast media types. Uh, these can be useful tools as well, and particularly in sharing these ideas with people so that like sharing the idea to go out into your communities in the ways that you normally interact and instead of just you know saying whatever you think will make the conversation and go ahead and be willing to engage with the conversation conversation and give put your faith put give people some some trust trust mm -hmm. that the, that they're capable of engaging in that conversation don't assume just because they don't look like somebody or seem to be acting like somebody that that they can't possibly grasp it or engage with it in a positive or productive way it's, it's like uh, surely you're gonna you're gonna come across people that are gonna be like oh one of those or they're gonna have something negative <laughs> to say or what like that's good but that's that's a risk and that's that's a price you pay for wanting equity <laughs> wanting like if you want it people aren't gonna just give it to you you're gonna have to take it from them and i was like 
and it, the it's you're not going to be able to take it from them unless they're at least willing to give some of it up and they're not going to give some of it up unless they understand why 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 that helps them and like that's going to take engaging with them and understanding like oh so you know like the this issue that you're dealing with with your landlord uh you know who didn't pay you were paying rent but they weren't paying their mortgage and now you're they're trying to put you out you know that's not just that guy being a jerk there's there's a systemic issue at play there that if if, if you get engaged in we can attack the root issues and and bring somebody like that into the fold and like and it, it's hard it's really hard i think and I'll, I've been trying to get so many things out. I've had so much bottled up over the last few months. So I apologize. Sorry. For so many things. I, I I'm sorry too. Yeah, uh, I've been so, so wait, really, really quickly, because I want to address something you just said about like working, like discussing things with people just in everyday interactions. This mm -hmm. is something that, that actually, so I'm going to bring up Brazil again. Sorry, everyone. But in, in Brazil, they have, um, runoff voting for like all elections and so even for the presidential election they have runoff voting and the first round of voting um bolsonaro who's the fascist beat the other guy who was running whose last name is adaji and so when he beat him of course it was enough it wasn't by enough for him to win the first round and so there were three weeks and then there was a second round and final round of voting in which bolsonaro again won but in those three weeks one of the things that like a lot of brazilians did uh, at least on the left, is they put, they like went out and started talking to random ass people. Like they literally had this kind of um, conversation campaign where they would talk to family members and friends and really try to, and, and then again, people that they didn't know that well. Apparently there's some sort of conflict on the street right now. I'm sorry for the noise again. Uh, but anyway, they had, people would go out in their communities and, and just like, you know, at a coffee shop, whatever, and have conversations with people. Um, and and what we saw as a result of that, even though Bolsonaro still won, there was a decrease in his support in certain cities and things like that, where, and, and even among certain demographic groups. Um, so in some ways, while it's not the most positive story because <laughs> the fascists still won, um, it's positive in the sense that I think a lot of people in reflecting upon doing, that, doing this really said, you know, it's something that I've missed. I've been using social media, I've been using Tinder, I've been using this, I've been using that, I've been staying at home and watching Netflix. I have not been engaging in directly, you know, speaking with people that I didn't know or even people that I did know. Like everything that we do now for entertainment is personalized. And even everything that we do now for activism is, is personalized and consumer driven in a lot of ways, you know? And so for them, they said that it was very, um, it was it was almost you know liberating in and of itself to get out of the house to talk to people to really try to change and engage and think of different ideas and you know perspectives of the world and everything and, and to do that in person in front of somebody live like you know touch and communicate with someone in front of you and i think that that that's something that we're really lacking in a lot of ways and i think might be or not might be it's definitely a big part of the solution and a big part of reaching what we consider, you know, socialist goals. Um, the other thing that I wanted to comment on, and then we definitely need to wrap up because it's almost midnight here. It's getting so late and I have to go to a thing early in the morning tomorrow. Um, but yeah, I really, I think a lot of what you said here is 
really important. And I'm sorry that you've had to keep it bottled up <laughs> for so long. <laughs> it's because I've been, obviously for those of you who've been following the podcast for a while, you know that um, I have been, uh, or the podcast was on hiatus because I've been out of the country for six months and haven't had the best internet everywhere I was. Um, and also was on like a massively different time zone and things like that. So it was very difficult to even halfway think about um, booking guests and having podcast conversations. Um, and in the in the cases of podcast interviews that I did do, a lot of them suffered from uh, the technical difficulties that I was having with the internet. So like um, I remember one podcast that I did, I basically would get cut off like my internet would stop working like every seven minutes, almost on the dot. It was like, you can't talk more than seven minutes and it would just shut down after we start everything. Um, so yeah, so long story short here is that my sincerest apologies for having to put things on hold and for you to having to hold things in during that moment of hiatus. But hopefully now that um, things are starting back up with the Left Pocket Project and of course Reading Revolution, which is the series that you co-host with me, um, hopefully you can get out a little bit uh, more of those ideas and not have to bottle them up so much. And while this was not fully a year in review, it was more like last couple of months in review because there's so much that happened that it's almost impossible to to review all of it. I mean, I don't even know how that would be. Like, we would leave stuff out for sure. Um, yeah, it's more of a where <laughs> where where do we find ourselves now? Yeah. Like it, after this year, you know, like we yeah. experienced this, and uh, I mean, for me, this education it's been a very educational uh time and so like uh i don't i don't i didn't mean to uh, sh put any shade towards you or anything about the bottling it up uh, that's, oh, that's no. on me it's like no, no shade taken <laughs> uh, this space is uh I, I i really enjoy this space and i feel like the listeners uh, that i've been looking around and like poking at and like looking into to some degree or just paying more attention towards and uh, I realized that we have a very diverse audience, uh, a wide ranging of age, uh, lots of people that English isn't their first language, uh, and people all over the world that listen, which is just amazing to me. And so uh, I, I guess I, I apologize to some degree for my US centric perspective, but then I think the part of the reason that people listen is because they know that that's going to be a part of what, what we do, but then also that we try to keep in mind that we live in a world, not just in a country or in a state or whatever, and, and in a city and just our community, uh, that that we're part of a larger community and that we all deserve respect and dignity. Uh, it doesn't matter what color you are or how much money you have or what country you were born in. And so uh, I think getting us getting more of us as a society to recognize that will help lift us all up and the this program i think has been crucial in the educational edu educating part of me but uh i think i want to do more of the engagement with people and so mm -hmm. uh the this the hiatus gave me time to think about you know what does that look like and how, how do i go about doing that and so uh i have had the opportunity to to like i mentioned i get the anecdote earlier you know of just taking some of this these thoughts and because i can't keep them bottled up for too long just dumping them on random people into the streets <laughs> and so that, that's one way to get me because i'm generally a very reserved and shy person and stuff mm -hmm. uh that that's generally how i am and so 
doing a podcast and talking about controversial things is very outside of my comfort zone and talking to somebody in person I don't I, and about things that are uncomfortable. I don't know if that's closer or further from my comfort zone, but one thing I have noticed and I think can give people some uh, positive encouragement is that I've been remarkably positively surprised when I've engaged people. They've uh, this is my fault for underestimating and not putting my faith and trust uh, in in other people, but that even people that in a lot of ways, I think we disagree in that, like, I don't think that we can come to a similar points of view, or at least not in any time soon, uh, that you can make progress and that that progress can actually uh, be positive and, uh, and have positive results uh, in your immediate life and then also for the people around you so that, you know, that can manifest in ways of, like, sticking up for people. Uh, when you see people getting bullied or you hear people make comments that are uh, disregarding or disrespectful of communities that you you care about, that you have love for. And uh, one thing we didn't really get to talk about, but that uh, I look forward to uh, also hearing your perspective of, and one of the critiques that I did think might have landed a bit on uh, Ferry was uh, regarding the masculinity and how that plays a role in all of these movements and how they've mm -hmm. manifested in history and currently and and the detrimental and toxicity that masculinity brings along with it and how that can also be a barrier in some basic communication and like uh which is another reason and the connection that i'll make with uh tuesdays with maury a little bit before we go is just that uh masculinity prevents men from uh having many emotions outside of uh you know, joy and some joy and then uh, anger. Those are the, the emotional range for a lot of men in the, in within the masculine culture. And mm -hmm. uh, it's going to take a lot of love to uh, be able to bring about any of the socialist changes that I think people that are listening want. And uh, loving other men is definitely taboo in uh, uh, masculinity. And that's uh, also... Rec that happens not just in the United States, but in communities across the world. And so uh, Tuesdays with Maury and in living in one's truth and in just loving people and, and letting that love guide you in your engagements uh, will take you far. And I'll shut I'm up. Sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, thought, I thought that the key to socialism and the way that we would um, put it into practice is by screaming at women online. <laughs> <laughs> I, guess I, I guess I got it wrong. I'm sorry. I I, I could have sworn that was the message. Uh, at least that's what I see a lot of. But I don't know. Maybe maybe I got the wrong idea. Um, no, but jo all joking aside, I think Richard is right. Um, and it's interesting because, like, as much as we talk about about the fight on the left and a lot of the language that we use is like revolutionary and murder and violence and take what's yours. And blah, you know, like there's a very much there's very much. Um, an element that is seemingly like bellicose, you know, like very war driven and like violence driven mm -hmm. in some ways, which I think is absolutely necessary in most cases. But even in that, even in those moments of violence, like there's an element of love too. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that aspect is often overlooked. And one of the things actually that uh, when I had on um, Sangeetha Sudarshan, I believe the fourth episode, third or fourth episode, one of the earliest episodes, she talked about this. And, you know, we were talking about the place of violence on the left, but also the need for us to have love on the left. 
and for us for love to be sort of a guiding practice in in our everyday understanding of leftism and its application in our societies um so i think in some ways like you're adding to that uh in large part because it's something that i often forget because i'm not loving i'm totally into like fighting and and stuff um <laughs> no, I'm, just, yeah. I'm kidding i'm kidding i but i think it's just because i the nature of of what we see of leftism at least in the u.s like of 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 leftism in its social media face is very like it's it's not the real thing obviously in, in many ways but it's also just so it's not just justified anger which is what i think i often exude <laughs> like usually i'm like i'm angry for a reason this is why i but know I when i'm doing it it's justified anger for sure no, but but... I, like, I think i yeah, have no. justified anger but i also see Sometimes, but usually, like my anger is not meted out against other individuals. It's mm -hmm. like this particular government official, or this particular systemic abuse, or this—you know what I'm saying? This particular mm -hmm. institution violated people's rights, and I'm angry about that. It's not like me attacking, like going after somebody who has, yeah. you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like I'm usually not. I'm usually not engaging in like one hand one to one combat online. You know, I'm right. usually like angry at a system um and so that's why i say i think i have justified anger and usually if i'm reacting to someone who's an individual it's because they did something to me first like i generally don't go after um individual twitter users it's like if you mess with me then we're gonna have words but if you don't if you're just like commenting like a normal human being you may disagree with me and that's okay and i have no problem with that but some people are just like unnecessarily mean or like weird online and they're going to get a response from me, but that's because I'm a human being and I'm not like, mm -hmm. you know, a glow up doll. Um, but mm -hmm. I do think that we do need more love. Um, and, and that revolution in and of itself is, should be based in love. Like it's a matter of love for your people. It's about love for equality. Um, it's about love for your rights and the rights of others. Um, and so I think that there is there is that element that we often forget to discuss, but it should be a, a big part of any change that we seek to enact in the world. Uh, on that note, because I'm an old lady and I have to wake up early in the morning and because we've been talking for a long time, I feel like we've been talking for like three hours now or something. Probably. Uh, <laughs> yes, it actually is three hours because we started at like nine my time and now it's almost midnight. So we have been talking for a very long time as we, we are, we tend to do, but I think it's worth it. And we haven't talked, we haven't talked to each other in six months or more. Right. So yes. it makes total sense that, that we would talk for this long. Um, Cause I think the last time I talked to you, I was also in Brazil. We had the, ironically, the discussion then was, it feels like the world is on fire. I think that was the title of the episode. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and this was like six months ago. So imagine where we are now. I think the world is beyond just being on fire. I think it's, it's like some other state altogether. Um, that, those are the innocent days. Um, but yeah, and I appreciate you being on again and joining me tonight uh, to talk about a little, just a kind of re recap of the year, but also uh, getting back into the groove of, podcasting and talking about these issues because I've had a lot bottled up too and I've seen a lot um in my time abroad I mean I've been to Brazil a jillion times Brazil feels like when I came back to Brazil uh from Mozambique I felt like I was going home already <laughs> like I'm not in the United States yet I'm not a Brazilian citizen I'm not from Brazil like I have to clarify that because some people online seem to think that I'm Brazilian and I'm like 
guys, I'm not Brazilian. I just study Brazil and I like speak Portuguese, but I'm not actually Brazilian. Okay. Like, wait, wait, you're a U.S. citizen that like knows things about another country. Are you sure right. you're not, you're sure you're not the resident there? <laughs> and this is funny because when I was in Mozambique, it was often a thing that was said to me, like as a joke, they were like, oh, you're an American who's like studying other countries. And I'm like, yes, they thought it was weird. Like they, you know, and they have a very negative, negative view of Americans, many people, which I understand. Like, I'm like, I get it. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, even in, even in Mozambique, everyone called me a Brasileira, which is like the Brazilian. So even there, everyone assumed that I was Brazilian because of my accent when I speak Portuguese is completely Brazilian because uh, this is where I learned Portuguese and where I spent the most time, but also just because of the way I look. But even online, like even on Twitter, <laughs> for some reason, uh, I guess, again, because I talk about Brazil a lot, but like just to put it out there, I am not Brazilian. I'm from Tennessee. And I've said this multiple times, but I guess people don't hear me or something. I don't know. I, I was born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee. My entire family is from Tennessee and Mississippi and like West Africa and England by way of slavery. That's it. Like we don't have any Brazilian, no Portuguese, no nothing. It's like British and West African and Southern. That's it. Like that's us. And so, um, I I just have to clarify that because like I don't I feel like people are disappointed when they find out that I'm not Brazilian. <laughs> and I was like, it's not my fault. Like it's it's where I grew up. I grew up in Tennessee. I'm from the United States. I have an American passport. Even here, like in Brazil, people are like, what you're and I'm like, yes, I'm American. Like at, at customs, people think that I'm like a Brazilian woman trying to be fancy and like maybe who married a I married an American who's using her American passport. Like this is what I get at the airport all the time. I'm like, no. I'm from the United States. <laughs> so I'm from the United States. But anyway, when I came back from Mozambique and I, you know, I was here, I'm here in Brazil and then I'm going to go back to the United States in a week. But when I was packing to come back to Brazil, I was, I felt like I was going home. Like I didn't feel like, like, I feel like this, this U.S. this U.S. stuff is like superfluous, you know, <laughs> like it's not necessary. <laughs> like, oh, well, you know, I'll just stay here. Like, that's fine. Like, I know they're, they're about to be under fascist, but whatever, this is my home. Like, it feels like home. And so I think sometimes, you know, in, but, but beyond what I already knew about Brazil and like my experiences here, which again, we're sort of comfortable because I know people here, this feels like home to me. The reason I, I said all of this is because like Mozambique did not feel like home. And there are reasons that it didn't feel like home that I feel like one, one day we should probably discuss and I think you and I have sort of discussed like off the record a bit about things that I saw and stuff that was just like really eye-opening. Um, and I don't mean this in like, a, I found myself when I went to Africa kind of thing. <laughs> like I don't mean it like that. Because <laughs> I know people have those experiences and like that was not, that's not what I'm saying. What I mean is in the sense Yeah, we didn't that, like, see the Twitter feed with you like hugged up on. <laughs> no, I didn't have any pictures of African children, quote under like TM, you know, like trademark African children photo. None of that. Um, but I did, I, I, I dealt with death. Um, I dealt with a lot of, I saw a lot of suffering. I saw a lot of poverty and I saw things that uh, with regard to the state and, and foreign entities and whatnot that made me incredibly uncomfortable. And I think that, you know, perhaps it's worth having a, a short discussion about during one of our podcasts, maybe the next ones that we do on Friday. I'm not sure if we'll have time, but, um, but definitely was, an eye-opening opening experience in that way and not to not in the sense that I'm blaming people from there for what's happening but in the sense that like I'm thinking I'm reflecting on the history that I know and some of the things that the U.S. and Europe did to basically constantly interrupt uh, Mozambican development 
and the ways that financial institutions from European and American European countries and the United States continue to interrupt uh, development in Mozambique and to be able to, like to see that on the ground in real time is really uh, disturbing. Um, and so I think that we should, you know, maybe have a discussion about that. But I, I, my time away has also been a period of deep reflection and lots of bottling up <laughs> um, <laughs> that I need to let out at some point too, and that maybe we can do at some point when I'm back in the States or for the next few episodes. But thank you so much, Richard, as always, for extending wow. some of your time to this podcast. Much appreciated. And as per usual, you're always the more eloquent one. And I'm always the one who's like, ah! you know, like oh. that's my, <laughs> my setting, my setting as a podcaster when I'm not doing the interviewing and I'm just talking is like chaos. <laughs> so thank you for being the calm amid the storm. Oh. I'll, 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 I'll take the compliment. I'll, I'll, I'll try that. <laughs> yes, you should, because you're always like, you don't accept compliments well, but this time, take the compliment, because it's true. And I'm sure people listening are like, they want to hear more of you. I'm sure when, when it comes to reading revolution sessions, and this is why, like, when I do the other uh, interviews or when I do the other podcasts, I don't talk that much. Like, I, I want to hear more from my interviewee. Um, but for me, when I'm, when I'm the one doing the talking on this podcast, it's like, oh Lord, I find so. your, your, your takes very insightful and I appreciate, uh, uh, your lived experiences, especially like they're incredibly, uh, helpful for me. And I am so thankful for the space and I'm, I'm thankful for all the listeners, all the uh, patrons. And I, 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 I'm trying this, you know, living my truths or whatever. And I just want to say, I love y'all. <laughs> I do. I love y'all. And I care about y'all. I don't know where he that. gets this y'all from. Uh, I'm not Southern. My parents, uh, <laughs> my, my dad uh, was, came from Oklahoma. And so okay. I, 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 I every once when I get when I get emotional or whatever it comes out and like I, I, I don't I, there's no R's in wash for me like but you know they're still washing everything and and like all sorts of good stuff like that but uh, I like uh, yeah I'm just no so, with you. <laughs> I, I just, uh, yeah I just uh, I got love for everybody out there and uh, I uh, I think we can do this uh, I I think I think we can we can make. We can leave the world better than we found it, at least. I don't know if we're going to fix it, but we can leave it better than we found it. And uh, uh, that's what I'm, I'm working towards every day. And I'm glad that people are listening and enjoying us in the ways that they can. Well, thank you, Richard, as always. Um, and you're right. Hopefully socialism will win. may not be within our lifetime, but it better be soon because Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and on that note, thank you all for listening. Uh, thanks, of course, as Richard said again thinking about others but thanks for the patrons uh thanks to everyone who's been listening and yeah hopefully hopefully we'll be back soon I, I think the next podcast will probably be out in uh january we plan on releasing the first uh, the first part of the pedagogy of the oppressed um episode in the early january um and then hopefully the next episode by mid-january because um, I'm going to be out of town in early January. I'm going to Chicago uh, for a conference. So for, hey, for anyone who's in Chicago and who's not like scary and stocky, um, please feel free to get in touch with me because I will be there for a couple of days uh, to, to talk about Brazil, actually. Um, but uh, yeah, so thanks again. And uh, that's it.
for listening to the Left Pocket Project podcast. By the way, we have in our next few episodes a discussion of Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. You can find the entire text available on the Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash leftpoc. You can also donate to the podcast and the project itself by going to the same page and donating a dollar or more. By the way, as I mentioned, nothing on the Patreon page for Left POC is behind a paywall, but our donations are used directly towards paying our assistants to take care of transcripts and other items for the podcast, as well as paying for web storage, data storage, and the like. Um, I've given a breakdown of that on Twitter, which, by the way, you should follow the Left Pocket Project on Twitter by going to twitter.com slash leftpoc or just at leftpoc. And you can also find the Left Pocket Project on Facebook, on SoundCloud, on Spreaker, and a variety of other places. So please feel free to uh, drop us a line, a comment, um, a question even, and a donation if you have the money and the time. Thanks again, and have a good one.